uh, I coined it, or maybe you did, the mini mini roundtable per question. Well, is, is that the desired effect that you want to have? Not yet, but that's what I'm trying to get to. I'm trying to think through it. I mean, a lot of it has to do with a lot of it has to do with getting the panel to a point where we feel like we could easily do that with anybody in the panel. And I'm not sure we're quite there yet, but but that's 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 what we're trying to get to. Well, if we can get Preto to stay out, I think we'd be okay. <laughs> Jesse, I think you didn't say it. I didn't want to say correctly. Great back. I'm doing a DDoS attack on your IP address. Just concerned that. There you go. Thank you. I, I want to walk it. I want to get Alex to the point where his uh, his unity is in his same earbuds and he can use the same mic simply. He seemed to. He's listening. Is he listening? No, he, he unplugged. Does he, have, does he have us on a speaker when he walks away like this? Alex, are you on a speaker? See, that's what he wants you to think. Okay, which one should I use? This is a cats with thumbs up. And they put no thumbs on the cats. I think somebody should get an army of uh, mechanical Turks to go onto those sites because you know they're scraping your opinion about what a thumb is. So when you pick a good thumb, the computer goes, oh, that's what they mean by thumb. Okay. Yes, of course. That's part of the system design. So you, so you get a bunch of mechanical Turks in there, and you pick the worst examples all the time. And and, and so it'll end up being like that old Steve Martin uh, routine about, he says, it's fun to teach kids to talk wrong. Do you remember that routine? About mid seventies, no. I think What's you're making, a Turk making that up? What's a Turk, Chris? A mechanical Turk. Uh, I think I'm using that term right. A mechanical yeah. Turk is when you put a bunch of humans on a task, uh, like a lot, to yield what to the casual observer may appear to be an automated response. So, uh, I, th I think, I think I'm using it. Is, is that right? Here, I'm going to, let's ask, let's consult the book of knowledge. Uh, yeah, it's a, actually it's a product right. from Amazon. Amazon has a product called mechanical Turks where you can hire people to do tasks. There you go. Crowdsourcing task. Yeah. They clean your house. Ah. So here's, here is the origin of the term. Somebody made an automated chess computer that actually was a table that had a guy inside it that somehow could read and move the chess pieces. And his name was Turk? Or, do we, or maybe he was Turkish. Yeah, I believe it was a Turkish. Turkish taffy. So that's the origin of the term. So just Chris, did, we, did, we, did I properly answer your question, or do you have something you need help with? No, I think I got Mechanical Turk now. Cool. Thanks. Good, good. It's easy. The day I learned. 
the Turk was in fact a, mechan a mechanical illusion that allowed a human chess master hiding inside to operate the machine. Mecha mechanical Turk. Trojan Turk. And not to be confused with mechanical turkey, that's an entirely different thing. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for tuning into Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can always find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour every day, a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. Uh, the second hour, typically a deeper dive into a different topic. Today, we're going to be talking about lenses, filters, and lens accessories for all classes of cameras. So if you do any kind of shooting whatsoever and you're interested in the optical side of things, stick around for our second hour. That's the preamble to everything. Now it's time to dive into our first question today. Mitch, what do we have? Thank you, Bill. Uh, starting out with Scott Wasserman in Detroit, Michigan. Scott asked, the bleachers filmed an hour-long set driving a city bus on the interstate. They had a camera car filming exteriors visible at parts. What is the process and legality for filming like this on public roads? Alex, you want to start us off here? It doesn't look like they got any permits <laughs> for that. I, I looked at the video. Uh, it looks like they did what we what we tend to call stealing shots, which means that you're not going through the permitting process to get the shots. Uh, I don't see any any proof of uh, of 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 any kind of. Um, typically, what you would do is if you're doing road shots, you're doing exterior shots, and you want to use something like a jib or you want to use any kind of exterior hardware. Um, you're going to tend to get you're going to get an escort. So you're going to have police escorts. You're going to pay for that. Uh, you're going to have a couple cars that go front back. They're going to clear out. It, you're going to ignore the traffic lights because the cars will literally stop. It's the best, by the way. It's like the best day ever. Like it's all the things you ever wanted to do when you were doing traffic. Is just you just go through, you're just breezing through, and you're stopping when you want to stop and going when you want to go, and all traffic. You feel like the president, you know. And and so it's it's a really great. Uh, uh, great experience, but that's not what they did here. They, I think that they took a, you know, they had something, probably some kind of van um, that they were shooting out of the window, you know, and um, I think that they were just following in front, following to the side. I don't think that they were doing anything, um, anything specific. And we've done, I've done plenty of that too. So, so it is, uh, you know, you open up the door of a van um, and you shoot out the side. Uh, I wouldn't normally do it. We've done it on the PCH, but I haven't done it on a big highway. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, so I think that that's probably the the approach that they did for this. This is a, probably a little too edgy without the budget to uh, actually get the the permitting required, which does get expensive. Mitchell? Otherwise called guerrilla filmmaking, uh, it depends on the city you're in too, because if you're going to get a film permit, uh, they will require all of those things that Alex mentioned, uh, police escort, particularly in L.A. Or, or the environs around it, and in New York. Um, if you're in the middle of uh, the country somewhere, not going to be a problem. You can probably shoot it. But if you're going to print a film with people's faces in it, other than just, just casual uh, you know, profile shots, things like that, you're going to need to get releases on all those people. Chris Fenwick? You know, there's a couple of... Uh... I think they're Instagram channels that are called like uh, like grip rigs or something like that. And the main thing that you have to think about when you're shooting on roads is there are definitely things that we do that 
can uh, be dangerous. Uh, mounting cameras on jibs and things like that. I've seen footage of people like hitting a bump or coming around a corner and the whole camera rig gets ripped off the, the boom because somebody didn't think about that, uh, you know, newspaper stand or that, that, you know, light pole that was there. So you really have to be careful when you're dealing with cars. One of the jib things, I can't remember what it was, Osmo, LMNOP, whatever, uh, I've done a lot of stuff where we mounted on the hood of a car and you can sit in the passenger seat and drive it with a phone and like you can pan and zoom and roll and stop. And I've done a whole bunch of that like in downtown San Francisco, but you really just have to be super careful about being safe. Alex. Yeah, and here's the uh, here's us doing it maybe 15 years ago. Um, so that's that's on the PCH, and so we needed those exterior shots, and so uh, we found a place where there was two lanes, and uh, we had we just opened up the door and and had the car drive by, and we had the shot. So so that's that's a that's a practical version of of doing that. I've done a good bit of this too, and I'm just going to say two words to you, which is risk management. Uh, if if anything does go wrong, and you have not pulled all those permits and done it as Alex described in the official way. If somebody gets hurt or killed, you're in a world of trouble and you could be in serious, yeah, that could ruin your life financially for and, the rest of the time. So, And at, at the age that I am now and what I've done in the past, I would never do that again. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't my, it actually wasn't my production. I was, I was there, I was there doing other things and they were, they were doing that, but I would never, never take that on again if I, if I uh, did it again. So Yeah. You have to go to Alex's level if you're going to get an insurance company to underwrite any of that. Chris Fenwick? Somewhere on a hard drive, I have footage of a guy shooting out of a van exactly like that, Alex, and something ahead of them happened and the driver had to tap the brakes a little harder oh, no. and the door went, whoopa, yeah. snap, the, snap the lens off the front of an Ikigami camera. I have yeah. a picture somewhere. I did that out of a helicopter one time, but it was, uh, I almost fell out too. So. so anyway, let's move on to the next question. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas asked, Today my Mac Mini is asking me to install Mac OS Ventura 13.1 and Pro Video formats. Has anyone done this? And if not, when is your next planned upgrade? David Paskin will start us off here. I have uh, upgraded with no problems. And moving on, we're going to go. My mouse is in the wrong place. Jesse Custer. Um, you're seeing the latest version of Ventura on an M1 Mac Mini right now. It's being used for Resolve and uh, Light Creative Cloud, and so far, no problems. But we do do a clean install. We wipe the hard drive when we're putting in the latest version of an OS. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, I'm upgrading this week. So um, I usually wait until January, about mid-January before I do it. I did it once fast, I think like a year ago, and I paid the price because I was really excited about some new software. Um, but usually January is a good time because usually most of the updates that are going to happen from Apple are going to happen before uh, January um, because the, now they kind of turn and start paying attention to WWDC. <laughs> so so there's they're looking at new things, not old things. And so um, usually it's a good time when things are pretty well settled. Chris Fenwick. I always think it's really cute to hear about how paranoid people are about upgrading because I upgrade. I'm very cavalier about upgrades. It's like, oh, new thing, upgrade. Uh, I do it all the time. I will say that uh, I have whatever the latest stuff is on uh, an eight gigabyte off the shelf Mac Mini. Of course, it's bef it. I have the one before they did the upgrade, Alex. You know that big Mac Mini upgrade, right? That never happened. Um, uh, I have one of those. Uh, by and large, it works fine. I did have an issue with uh, the internet not like connecting like anything online wasn't working. I haven't totally got to the bottom of it, 
but I disconnected a bunch of um, accessories that were plugged in. This is my Zoom ISO machine, so it has all those pluggable devices I've talked about so many times. I unplugged all that and quit some of those extra pieces of software, and uh, the internet is working fine now. I haven't really got to the problem. Maybe I should have done a clean install. I'm lazy. Mitch Hill. Yeah, it is a good idea to do a clean install. I did not. I was in a hurry, and I figured, what the heck, I got nothing to lose, and I did the Ventura update, and I had no problems. Uh, other than uh, it kicked out Adobe on all my uh, um, on the computer. None of the shortcuts or anything else was still there. I had to reinstall it. I did it with no issues at all as well, so I was lucky. I don't have any Adobe software, so maybe that was part of why. Next question. David Paskin, Miami, Florida, USA, and here on our panel. I understand that for many folks, having the camera off and just listening is preferable. For presenters, staring at a bunch of black screens is deadly. Any suggestions on how to get people to turn on video? Let's start with Harshid Trivedi. Harshid. I would say take the radio approach first. So if you're explaining it as if you're on a radio, you're not going to worry about who's looking at you. You're going to explain what you're trying to get across to the folks uh, on the other side. So it, the I think the main problem here is the anxiety of it. So if you take what you're trying to approach or try to send across and just work on that level of using different vocabulary rather than click here, you say on the top right-hand corner, you'll find a accounts button. Let's click on this button. It just gives you more context. So it gives you better vocabulary and therefore you would start ignoring the black screens in front of you. Jesse Castor. When we're hosting a production meeting, we let people know in the invitation email that they're expected to come with their cameras on. There you go, Jeffrey Powers. I find it more distracting than anything to look at somebody else's face, especially uh, if they're reacting to something that they, you don't want to see them. Maybe they're reacting to an email because they're, they're really not, they're not looking at you. Uh, my focus is to look in the little black void that's right in front of my face. And I've really struggled on, on putting another monitor behind that to bring faces in. So what I ended up doing is I put a face in there. So I have, you know, like a little Lego or something like that, or you could take a picture and then put it right, right next to the camera, right in front of the camera. I can see my, uh, I can see the call on the left side through a peripheral. So that's perfect for me. So if their cameras are off, it's not a big deal, but if you really want to turn them on, engage with them. Easy <laughs> as that. It's like, Hey, Tom, what, what do you got? Uh, what are you wearing today? What, what's, what's in your left hand? Anything like that. You talked to Lego construction guy. That's very cool. Alex. Yeah, I, I, um, I mostly uh, just need one person on. on. <laughs> like, I don't really care. Uh, it, it is a little bit hard. I will agree with you. It's hard when there's nobody on and you're just, and you're just there. But usually I, and, and usually if I don't think I'm going to have one person, I get somebody from the company to show up or somebody that I work with to show up and just be in the audience so that I'm talking to them. Um, so that I have somebody to talk to. Um, it, it isn't, imp I can definitely do it without that. I've done lots of radio. I've done video stuff without people on the other side, but I will agree that it's, it's easier if someone's naughty. I think that, by the way, I think that that's something that I, I, I talked about it. I think I was talking about it on, on the panel meeting yesterday, but the, the, in a meeting, the best present you can give pretty much in life, the best present you can give people is being present. <laughs> you know, like, and, and, and it, it is amazing when I watch people interview, we've done lots of interviews through Interatron and how often the interviewer would look down and be looking for their next question and looking for the other things. And it's a, it's night and day. If you're talking to somebody, asking them and you're nodding going, mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm, you'd be surprised at how much better performance you get out of that, out of that interviewee 
um, if you're just with them 100% and letting them talk to it rather than looking for your next thing or trying to figure out what, what's next. It's better, if you're, especially if you're recording it, to just look down and figure it out between questions. It gives them a moment. It does, you know, so it's just, I would definitely, as an interviewer, think about that as well. David Paskin. I'm asking this because when I was doing the labs, um, the first two labs I did, the Ecamm lab and the Stream Deck lab, nine times out of 10, I'd be the, oh, it felt like I was the only one with my camera on and it was just me monologuing. And it was boring. And then yesterday we had the Canva keynote lab and there were like four or five people with their cameras on and I left just feeling so hyped about it. I was so, it was so much more pleasurable for me to be able to engage with folks and interact with folks. So, well, and, and I, I love your idea, Alex, of having a plant. In fact, I was speaking with Michael, who's gonna be starting his lab. And I said to him yesterday, I said, I'm gonna show up and I'll have my camera on, I'll be the plant for you. And, and I wanna say that, if you were talking about our community, I'd be telling everybody just turn their light, turn their cameras on, you know, like, you know, or, or at least a little bit of shame there. You know, like even given it's our community, I'd, I'd push people to turn their camera on. I wouldn't require it, but I'd probably uh, push and tell them how much better of a show it would be if they just turned their cameras on. Mitchell. If you have that full view on and you're seeing everybody, all of us have people that we use as sort of a barometer, like... I'm always taking a peek at Alex's expression to see if uh, my humor is working or not. And if I catch the frown, I know, oops, that one didn't work out. And the thing you said earlier about radio, because we talked into a microphone and there was nobody there, um, I found that I got much better when I had an engineer uh, driving a board for me at WFIL, uh, where I was talking to a person in the other room and I played to that person more. And I think that I became a better uh, radio DJ because of it. So I'm plus one on audiences. Chris Fenwick. Uh, I don't care if anybody else has their camera on. I just make sure mine's on because 95% of the time I'm just looking at me anyway. So I'm fine. Uh, you know, when I was a beginning radio announcer, one of my professors, I think, said, uh, if you can't figure out how to make it seem like you're talking to a person rather than trying to bloviate toward a crowd, put up a picture and talk to that person. And I did that for just a couple of days. I, I will say one of the hardest transitions for me coming to something like office hours is because I've done so much radio and in there you're talking, but you're looking around and you're doing everything. So this process of making eye contact with the audience has been a tough call for me. And it's something I've had to work on and I'm still not as good as I'd like to be. But for those of you who are going to be doing the Zoom thing and you want, you know, you're practicing that, just try to pay attention to that eye contact thing. It is very important. Next question. From Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, Paul asking, what is the current state of cross-platform playout devices, such as Playout B, which runs on Windows, Mac, Raspberry Pi, and Linux? Alex is going to start us off. You know, there aren't, in my opinion, other than, other than Playout B, there aren't that many cross-platform uh, playout systems that are use, useful. Um, so I think Playout B does a pretty good job of that. Um, the problem is, is that you really have to, to get, get it right you really have to write to the operating system to make that work. And that becomes cumbersome and the market isn't that big. So, you know, the ones that QLab, um, uh, Softron's on the air, um, MIDI, MIDI is a, is a reasonably good one that I think is cross-platform. But, um, but I think that across all of those things, I think PlayOutB is the only one that would do all four that you laid out. Um, but I think MIDI might be Mac and PC. Um, but a lot of the other ones are all... Um, single platform because it takes a lot of work to get it to, to play every single frame every single time and uh, be really customized to to getting the highest quality. Chris Fenwick. 
if people aren't familiar with Play Out B, you should really be watching it. I know that Jonas, who is you know part of our community here, one, he's wicked smart. Two, he's very receptive to input and ideas. Uh, he was showing us uh, his new version. I don't know if it's 1.0 or 2.0 or whatever. And I, and I had a couple of suggestions. And like a week later, he's like, hey, can I show you some stuff? And he was already integrating some of the input that I was giving him. So, and it, he, apparently it works, you know, uh, Windows, Mac, Linux. Um, so definitely take a look at it. You don't need anything else. Just use Playout B. Mitch Hill. Plus one on Playout B. I like it. Uh, Jonas uh, uh, has done a marvelous job creating that. I wish, I wish, here's my feature request. I figured I'd ask now um, that he had a remote control for HyperDeck. Wouldn't that be something if you could uh, create a playlist and top and tails your files using Playout B as the remote control? Now, that would be something. Jeffrey Powers. So, uh, first of all, the Raspberry Pi is still way too out of reach. I, I, I think the last, the, the cheapest I can get a Raspberry Pi is $80. And you might be waiting for a long time for the $35 version to uh, to come back. So, uh, it, as for Windows and Mac and, and everything like that, you uh, can definitely use the Playout B. Other, other things like VLC or, or anything like that, using a Stream Deck to remote control to, uh, to run the buttons. A lot of people do use in, uh, in YouTube uh, streaming and things like that. Uh, our, our vMix will also uh, do that. So uh, that's a, those are good alternatives to uh, doing uh, simple playouts of videos. But uh, yeah, uh, Raspberry Pis are probably the hardest, uh, hardest to get right now. Paul, I hope you get some good ideas out of that. Next question. John Foltz in Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania, asking, do any of the panelists use LinkedIn Learning? What are your impressions? Alex? Yeah, I have um, LinkedIn Premium, so it just comes with it. So I don't, I don't really think I've had it for years, and I don't, I, so I don't really think about subscribing to it. I definitely subscribed to, um, to uh, lynda.com long before LinkedIn Learning. Uh, I think it's a great service, and I think that there's a lot of great training up there that you can get. A lot of times I haven't used it like, oh, there's eight hours on Photoshop. I don't really watch the eight hours on Photoshop. But a lot of times I'll search LinkedIn Learning. The, they've cut those into little five-minute chunks. And so if I'm looking for something specific within a, within a specific application or a specific process, I find that they do a lot of great, you know, they break it up so you can find that little five-minute chunk. And it's usually done very professionally. I mean, they it's a very organized process. You know, YouTube is great for a lot of things, but when you go to LinkedIn Learning, you have a team that has been figuring out how to do this. There's, I've, I've tried doing training for LinkedIn Learning. <laughs> this is too much structure. Like, I'm just like, oh, I can't get through this. And so I haven't, I haven't actually produced stuff I've thought about it. Um, and, uh, but I think that as a result, it's a highly structured, uh, the, it's grown from just screen captures, which is what lynda.com did, to really highly produced videos about all kinds of subjects. Um, I think it's one of the best training resources on the, on the internet. So, um, so, and again, it comes, if you get the LinkedIn premium, which gives you things like who looked at your, <laughs> who looked at your, um, your profile and lots of other data, uh, it comes free with that. Next question. From David Brady in New York, New York, decommissioning our insert studio building out an SDI workflow Zoom ISO rig. Found a pair of Ikigami 32-inch 1080 monitors worth using. Alex, what do you think? 
you can always find a place for a monitor. That's, that's all I'm saying. There's never a time when you can't find one and just put it up there. It could be a clock. It could be uh, web stuff coming through. 1080p is fine. Most of my monitors that sit around me are 1080p just because I, I want lots of them and I don't want to spend a lot of money on them. So, but I think that, uh, yeah, I think you would absolutely could find places for those. Mitchell. As long as they have a decent amount. Down, Mitchell. Um, Ickies had the uh, uh, the top tier of uh, color grading back in the day when they made those big CRT monitors. And if these are CRT, uh, maybe they're still good. But if you like uh, bathing in a stream of high high energy particles, it might be a problem. David Paskin. I want anything with the name Ikigami. <laughs> a fine brand. Been around the professional broadcast industry forever. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, Game Creek Video is powering an entire sports event on UPS units from Saunders Electric, tied into venue power instead of traditional diesel generators. Do you see our industry shifting to more eco-friendly power sources? Alex. I don't know how eco-friendly that is or if that's why they're doing it. Maybe they're promoting it that way, but that's not an unusual thing to do. So the UPSs are conditioning the power as well from the house. So the, the shore power goes into those into those and they're basically charging batteries which then are outputting that data and I literally saw a truck get fried <laughs> actually a game tree, a game tree truck uh, get fried um, in Philadelphia where they put the the wrong power into it from the from the house and um, yeah the the line was smoking <laughs> so so anyway so the uh, it was it was exciting um, to watch uh, and uh, a couple hours of live events didn't happen so or didn't get broadcasted so so the um, uh, so there's pushing it through that UPS is, is like your surge protector will also destroy the UPS before it'll destroy the truck. And the UPS is a lot less expensive than the truck. It also will transition to backup power um, much more gracefully than it will from a generator. Usually the generator needs a UPS in the middle of it. Uh, if you're using something like a cat, which is typically what you would need for the broadcast truck. So these look like storage containers. Um, and, and the cats will need a minute to, 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 to get transferred over. Um, and so having a, you even need a UPS there if you really want to have a smooth transition over. So um, uh, it's, it's, a re, it's a very reasonable thing. It's actually not done as often as it should be, but it's, it's a fairly reasonable thing to put the UPSs in. Um, and all they're not doing is putting the cats uh, in between. Jeffrey Powers. So we saw a lot of power uh, options at CES. And the cool thing about these power options is these are little boxes that can plug do, into do your power broadcast grid. trucks. They, they, yeah, they can, uh, they can, okay. they could, they could uh, definitely be, uh, uh, they might not be the ultimate for, uh, for a broadcast truck, but, uh, uh, you could probably, if, if you can put solar somewhere and you put a power inverter on there. I even saw a, a company where they basically, they drove these little things could actually uh, go from point A to point B on their own. So if they, just like a, a vacuum. So they would, uh, if they needed to be charged, they just go back to their station and get the either solar charger from uh, from wherever they're getting their power from. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of this is is coming in to reduce the carbon footprint, but still, you probably need some uh, some gas generators every now and then, depending on uh, where you are and what you do. Chris Fenwick. Yeah, let's not forget disposing dead batteries is not eco-friendly. I think the very fact, first of all, uh, Jeffrey, hanging out with uh, Keenan at an event, you're going to run into power things. So that guy is just drawn to power power uh, solutions. Um, the very th fact that we know who makes these UPS units tells me this is more of a promotion thing for the UPS company than anything else. Yeah, they're going to benefit from having it, but 
I'm sure that Saunders Electric is, you know, getting promotion buzz off of it. And there I just gave them free promotion by mentioning their name. Mitch Hill. Uh, to Alex's point, I've seen a bad diesel generator uh, set fire to a bunch of one-inch machines in a truck. Uh, perhaps uh, at this game inv- event, uh, they had a bad issue with uh, power that was being sent to them, and they just want that UPS as a safety measure. All right, we're going to go on to the next question. David Brady is back again from New York, New York. What are some of the panel's favorite AI-generated music apps? Alex, start us off. I'd love to have a list of AI-generated music apps. I haven't, I haven't seen these. Uh, that is a great second hour is to talk about AI-generated apps. Uh, I, I feel like music is going to be a big deal coming down the pipe. Um, that you know, you're going to be able to say, I want to hear Enter the Sandman in the style of reggae. You know, and and it will figure out what that what that actually means. Um, I think that uh, if I was doing needle drop, I'd be very worried. You know, like stock photography is really getting impacted by mid journey um, already, and um, well, it's, we can see what's going to happen. Um, and uh, I think music is going to be another one of those ones where you can start asking it to do styles, and it's going to give you those. And it'd be, I think it's going to be exciting. Jesse Kester. Um, be careful. Some products are being sold as AI-generated music, but they are actually, uh, what the computer is doing is being given a huge library of sample loops, and then it randomly combines a bunch of sample loops. Shutterstock Music is doing this under the banner of Amper Music, and you will see that they are not um, up to par with, with music that's actually generated by humans. There is some more diffusion-based AI music generation going on, and that stuff is very fun to listen to. You can feed a computer hours of Beatles music and then ask it to make a 30-minute uh, album in the style of what it just heard. And what it sounds like is music that could be really useful in the backgrounds of movies. They sound like um, They sound like songs, but if you listen, the words aren't words, the chords aren't really really chords, but there is some interesting stuff being done. Just be careful that you're not being sold uh, a randomly generated combination of loops in a, in a folder. John Prado. Jesse said exactly what I was going to say. Well done. Mitchell Hill. If you're going to get your uh, AI music system to uh, knock off a copy of Rush or uh, Led Zeppelin, I can already feel the lawyers surrounding that location. Uh, Alex is going to reprise. It'll probably be have the same problem that everything else has. If it's if it's truly generative art, it's going to be hard to it's going to be hard to nail down copyright wise um, because it's not really copying it. Uh, it is learning from it, and I think that's going to be a very difficult. I don't think that that I don't think that that's really going to work. <laughs> you know, like I, I know a lot of copyright lawyers think it will, and we'll see. The, the courts will tell us whether that makes sense or not. But I think that it's going to be that's a really really steep hill for to to win. Um, because it doesn't, it's not, it's not copying the notes, you know, like the, the, the idea that you can't copy, you can't copyright an idea you can, or, or patent an idea you can. And the problem is, is just looking at a lot of the stuff. And then the only angle that they have is really looking at, well, it brought it all onto its hard drive to analyze it. That's the, that's the, that's the weak link there. But what it generates, especially with mid journey, with music, everything else, it isn't generating something that's identical to anything or even looks, it, it isn't. It isn't using any of the pixels to produce the other thing. If I drew the Mona Lisa again, even if I traced it, that um, what I had, I could use. <laughs> you know, so so the uh, so I think that that's a really difficult argument. Um, I do. Um, by the way, AI OpenAI's version of this is called Jukebox. Um, they they I don't think they've opened it up, 
um, but they have some samples of what they're working on there. So you can see that it's probably when they, I'm sure that they're just waiting. <laughs> to, to, to Mitchell's point, uh, the music industry will freak out when it happens. And so I'm sure that they're rolling these out one at a time so that we got, we got Dolly, we've got, open, you know, um, chat GPT. At some point, they'll turn Jukebox on to a pu more public uh, stance and you'll see a whole bunch of people making music. Fascinating new topic. Eh? What AI and more properly, probably machine learning is doing to so many fields, just amazing. Next question. Next up, Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul asked, can you have multiple accounts under one YouTube premium license? It's Jeffrey Powers. Yes. Well, there you go. That was an easy answer. Uh, somebody has put family plan in this, so they must have some sort of uh, model for doing this. Uh, so, Paul, there's your answer. Next question. James Fosling in Minneapolis, Minnesota, asking, is the Fenwick equipment connector available as a commercial product? Enter all your equipment and create wiring diagrams. Chris Fenwick, in, inform us. So first of all, James, uh, that was fun last night. Uh, you, anybody is welcome to send me money via Apple Pay or Venmo, whatever. Uh, just, just send your cash. Uh, all we were doing last night, though, was... Um, we were working on James's, we called it ATEMception, uh, where he had a couple of ATEMs uh, plugged into each other. And we were working out like how I, he was telling me what he was doing. I was just trying to make a drawing. All I do, I just do this in Keynote, James. Uh, you use the little background remove thing. You grab your images. Uh, I, uh, there's Keenan's uh, uh, mobile thing. I do this all the time. This is me trying to figure out how to lay out all the gear on my desk. Uh, this is my... USB um, map for my main computer, what's plugged into what, nightmare. Uh, here's my truck install that I want to build, and this is the equipment I want to put in the truck the, the, for the mobile uh, broadcast rig. Um, but I just use Keynote. I just, and, and, and then you draw a line, and the line connects two things. It's pretty simple. It's a three-camera truck. I'd never heard that before. <laughs> Alex Lindsay. Yeah, I, you, you always the tool that you're good at is always the tool to use. I will argue that the um, that OmniGraffle is probably more effective for what Chris is doing uh, on a Mac. Uh, when I, when the tool in your toolbox is a hammer, when the only tool is a hammer, everything everything a looks like a nail. Keynote, yeah, Keynote is everything is a nail. Yeah, so I I do think it's going to be really interesting. Um, you know, I uh, I have a very large collection of of just images of equipment the way Chris has it there, and it really makes life easier. It's worth, it's when you're feeling like you don't want to do anything, grabbing some more equipment or, or, and as you build these, you tend to save them all out so that you have a folder full of them so you can grab this, onto them. This slide deck, I started building it uh, when we started office hours uh, and I was making drawings and it currently has 220 slides is, in it. And a lot of the images are very high, high res. So it's a really big <laughs> keynote file. Yeah, because I always look at it when when I search for those images on on Google, I I go to the tools and I go search for large, and I'm looking for the largest version of it so that the the keying works well. Um, you know the the Insta Alpha. The uh, this is Chris's secret way of of stealing all of our ideas. Like how do how does everyone build everything? He goes, I'll just I'll just draw a line for you. I'll just draw the layout layout for you. <laughs> <laughs> Clever. <laughs> Uh, let's, I think we're ready to go on. The only thing I, what do you last do, Chris, comment. when, when, when people start building, uh, Fenwick for, uh, the, um, the, uh, lower Fenwick's with uh, mid journey. That's the big question. It'll be like garbled up little computers. Ooh, and mid journey <laughs> understands, give me a lower Fenwick of, and we'll list three equipment. That will be pretty, 
Awesome. Uh, all right, we've pretty much hit this. Let's go to the next question. Moving on, Richard Lavery in Belfast. Recommendations for an on-location time code generator have three to four cameras and audio recorders as well. Mitch Hill, keep uh, going. Like the uh, the Denecki, seems to be the Denecki time code slate. That's a good one. And Didi makes a, uh, a knockoff of that that's uh, substantially cheaper. Yeah, there's another company called Harita, H-O-R-I-T-A, that has tons of time code generators, not just in the form of slates, but uh, time code uh, black burst generators for distribution, things like that. So look at some, some companies like that. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, as a longtime mic-equipped headset user, how much of an adjustment is to, to use a separate mic like a Blue Sona on an arm for apps like Zoom Teams versus a headset? Jeffrey Power is going to start us off here, Jeff. It's really just all about uh, how you can comfortably navigate around your area. So I used to, all my shows, I used to have a headset mic the second I got my first one. Uh, and then uh, starting doing office hours and we all sh shifted to uh, on-camera mics. I, there were a lot of times that, uh, that some of these uh, mic boom arms were just getting in the way to the keyboard, to the mouse, to the stream deck uh, during my shows because I ended up switching over on the shows as well. Uh, underslung pneumatic uh, uh, arms are great uh, if you have them in the right spot because then that microphone takes up a very small footprint and you can still get around to what you need to. This is actually the blue compass and I've got a, uh, a goose arm, gooseneck on this that brings it down a little bit more. So the microphone is got a very small footprint here and I can still get to what I need to get to for any type of uh, situation show uh, and, and live stream. David Paskin. When I was doing a lot of musical performing, I used to wear one of those Madonna mics. And it was fantastic because it allowed me to be wireless, to move around, to really engage with my audiences. Um, so for me, if I don't have to move, I want a mic that's going to stay where it's supposed to be so that I know it, it, the mic not only does it, it, having a mic stay where it is helps me stay where I need to be, helps me stay in frame, as opposed to if I'm wearing something, I end up wandering and jumping out of frame. And, and proof of that is our Fenwick framing that we do every day when we start office hours. It has been requested and it helps with the show to have all of our faces in the relatively exactly same position because there's a lot of automated switching that goes back building super sources and things like that. So I think it's, I am agreeing 100% with what David just said. If I'm on stage or something like that and I'm presenting, I definitely want a headset mic and a belt pack uh, transmitter. But if I'm at a desk in a fixed position, something like on a Zoom call, I want a mic that I can work, come back far from, get close to, and all the rest of that. Uh, just horses for courses. Chris Fenway had a last thought. Chris? I just want to say everybody's head is in the same place except for Pretos. Hmm. No comment. I am going to the next question. <laughs> Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, The Guardian notes that Apple's launched a catalog of books narrated by artificial intelligence in a move that may mark the beginning of the end for human narrators. Really? Do you buy this? Well, Alex is going to start us out. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's going to be great. <laughs> so, so anyway, I, I think that for fiction, you'll probably see less of it. So while they show fiction as an option, I think you're going to probably um, bring in uh, the... The actors that do those, it's still going to take some time for that to be replaced by AI. I'm not saying it'll never be replaced. It probably still is the beginning of the end. Um, but but the I think that it 
overall, it is it is going to make a huge difference. People like me who only read books via audio, um, if it has a lot of text, I'm, if I open up a book and I, or I look at it and I preview it on Amazon, it's got a lot of text. I'm like, oh, I'm going to listen to that. If it's got pictures, I might buy it. Uh, but I'm not going to, you know, not going to buy a lot of words. And, and um, you know, so the for folks who are listening to fiction, I think that people are still going to be doing that for quite some time. For non-fictional, you know, informational stuff, I think that AI will probably replace it in the next five years. And, the, and part of that is because the nonfiction has a much uh, shorter or much longer tail. So the generally nonfiction doesn't sell as well as the fictional stuff that's out there. And so it has got a much small, a lot of those have much smaller budgets and much smaller verticals that they're, they're trying to hit to. And so the, the typical cost of a narration is five to 10 grand to, to have the, um, the narration done for, you know, at a professional level. And the question when you write the book is, are, is that going to, are we going to sell enough audio books at $10 each or, or, you know, whatever, or at a credit each for Audible to make that worth it? And for a lot of smaller books, it won't be that way. And that's what Apple's really aiming at is that we're going to have a bunch, you know, if you're a smaller author, if you're an independent author, you can now have an audio book, which opens you up to the market of people like me who won't read books anymore. Um, they'll only listen to them. And so um, I think this is a huge thing for that. I think it's also huge for magazines. I mean, I think that being able to use AI, I think that's, it's actually more important for magazines because right now, for instance, The Economist is probably one of the only magazines I know of that just does everything that's in audio. Um, the, you know, there's another thing called News Over Audio at NOAA, which I subscribe to, and it gives you a smattering of all the things they've chosen. But now something like NOAA could just literally give you every magazine you know, <laughs> that's out there in audio. And I think that that is, um, it's really exciting from a kind of a content distribution model uh, to have something that you don't have to, um, it can be done very, very fast and it can also be done very, very inexpensively. I think Apple's providing it as a free service that people can just turn on if you're an independent publisher. Um, I wish it was something I could just turn on inside of my, <laughs> inside of my app, but that's not, uh, that's not the case. Mitchell, your thoughts? Pish posh. I, uh, I think an AI would be challenged to read something like I did that last line. AI, try this. Really? Do you buy this? I don't think it can do it. <laughs> I, I think if it modeled you, if we just had you do it, if you, if you recorded everything the way you wanted to record it, then it would sound just like you. Mitch mode. It would have a Mitch annoying. mode. <laughs> it would be annoying. <laughs> Jeffrey Powers. So there are uh, there's still uh, celebrities that are uh, that are reading books, and there's a lot. I know there's people out there that only want to listen to books that uh, that a celebrity would read because you know like Mitch said there's there's the inflections and there's certain times where you know I, I see these ads where they say oh it sounds like the real person and and there's even uh, apps that now will look like you and sound like you but you listen to them there's they're still so broken up it's it's crazy so yeah I agree with Alex it's perfect for uh, somebody with a visual disability trying to read a, ma a magazine online or something like that. But uh, I, I think that it's not going to go away because we're still going to want to have uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, reading uh, it or something like that, so they can uh, so they can get more faces and and more publicity. Uh, Chris Fenwick, you know, uh, I think the real question is like, what what is a book anymore? What is a magazine? I remember Alex, you were talking with Leo years ago at the beginning of the of his podcast journey. And you said, uh, I remember you said something like, 
go to go to Tower Records or go to your local magazine rack, and anything that's important enough to have a magazine should have a podcast. Yeah. And, and I mean, you said that like, uh, you know, what almost twenty years ago, and and it was really true. It was really it, it th that is what we've seen. Uh, they're they're not all good <laughs> podcasts, but there's a lot of podcasts that used to be on a magazine rack, and so. I'm more curious. I think uh, I think I've made my point about AI and all that, but I'm more curious about the idea of like what actually is a book anymore. Uh, a couple of years ago, Apple approached me about writing a book about Final Cut Pro, and I said to him, "I said, I'm I'm embarrassed that you still want to make a book. Like, why do you want to make paper in?" 20, it was 2020 back then. Why would you want to do that? Why don't we instead reimagine education for One. the 21st century and maybe even the 22nd century? And, and I said, if, if you tell me you want to do that, I'll turn my life upside down to, yeah. to write that, but not a book, not I, paper. It, That's ridiculous. You know, Electric Image uh, asked me to write their manual probably 1994. And um, I wrote, I, I wrote the proposal of we're going to build this all in hypercard, like, like hypercard, and we're going to do the whole thing so that you had everything was hyperlinked and there's videos and there's things. And I think that, and that was you know 30 years, almost 30 years ago, that I was like, this is the future of what we should be doing, and and, and I should be able to listen to it when I want to listen to it, and I should be able to click on things, and if I see an image, I can click on it and see an animation. And all of that was possible 30 years ago. It would have been hard <laughs> to do that. I, I did the budget was like a quarter million dollars to do that, um, but the. Uh, but I think that the the big thing that Apple missed um, and when they opened up iBooks or books, you know, now what they call it, is the opportunity to redefine what a book is and say, I'm going to let you listen to it. I'm going to let you read it. I'm going to have video. I'm going to have, and all, they have all the tools. Pages will produce documents that will do that. But they haven't really, I feel like Apple's really missed the boat there because instead, of, instead they're just competing with the lowest common denominator. They're competing with Kindles and, and Amazon and everything else where they could do something that once you get used to looking at books like that, it'd be hard to go back, you know? And I think that, but I think this is going to make some of that that easier. And again, I think that, I don't think that it's going to get change fiction very much, but I think that non-fictional content, and when you remember, when we talked about the bookstores too, when you walk into it, when, when we used to walk into a bookstore, there was a, there was one section that was fiction and the rest of the bookstore, 90, 95% of it was non-fiction. It was about things that people were passionate about. And what this provides is, is much more information related to the things that people are interested in. David Paskin. Can someone explain the difference between AI narration and the sort of stuff that we already have, that computers are already able to do? So what they're doing is they're reading, they're having people read something. They're having a person, you know, read a lot of, um, and so what they do is they model it. They're at reading, this isn't like, I guess someone said that they could do it in three seconds yesterday, I think Microsoft or Intel or something like that. This is hours and hours, days and days of them reading um, text, and what they're what the computer does more than just you know your voice your vo your vocal structure, it's really figuring out how you approach reading. So how do you approach different um, you know sentences, and how do you approach ending and starting and everything else? Because that's what's missing in most of the in most of the computer voices right now is understanding intonation, understanding speed, understanding all of those things. Are, are and the the if you listen to the voices that Apple has there, there's like four of them that are there. They're not perfect, but they're pretty darn good. Would I use them for a fictional content, which they show there? Uh, maybe, 
Um, would I use it for non-fictional content? hundred percent. In fact, it, for someone who listens to, I mean, I listen to hours and hours and hours and hours of audio content a day. I mean, <laughs> a day, you know, um, I, uh, I don't like listening to humans do speak because I can't listen to it f as fast. So humans idiosyncrasies, um, make it harder for me to actually listen at two X or 2.5 X, which is where I like to sit. Um, you know, so it's easier for me to, uh, I, I, with a human, I have to slow down to like 1.5, 1.75 because of the idiosyncrasies of their voice. And so, um, this allows you to, you know, so machine, I think this is going to be, it's going to be pretty, it, it, it's going to change it. And again, there's 99.999% of ev all information right now is, um, in text form and not in audio form. And so for people like Hershid, uh, and, and, pe and, and then people like me that just aren't, I don't have a. I don't have a, I'm not sight impaired, but I also don't like to, you know, I just don't like to monotask. You know, I, li I love listening to things while I'm doing the dishes or doing cleaning or organizing or something that doesn't, you know, that's, that's when I can absorb all that information or driving or walking. You know, those are the things that, that um, I think that are a real opportunity there. Jeffrey Powers. As, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking, you know, the best uh, version of AI would be uh, real time. So as I, would be typing it out within like three or four words it's already getting narrated to the public so uh, if you've got something that needs to come out right there right then then something like this is going to be perfect for that and if they can just tighten it up and put all the proper inflections in i th it, it'll be a great thing but in the long term you know we're gonna fight we're gonna fight with a lot of things like deep fakes uh, voice deep fakes people wanting to sound like uh, other uh, other celebrities and and lawsuits coming from that so we'll see what happens let's move on to the next question javier alfaro from mexico city mexico when do you think chat gpt will launch its paid version and what pro features would you like to be seeing in a paid tier bonus question how much would you pay for it? Alex, start us off. Uh, I think it'll probably be soon. Uh, what I really want to see is just in my phone, like I have with Midjourney with inside of Discord. The real, real problem with ChatGPT for me right now is I have to go to a web page and sometimes I have to log in and then I have to do the thing. And it would I would probably use it a lot more if I was able to just um, do that. I think that uh, otherwise, I think that, it, I mean, I'd be ready to pay. I mean, for what it does, I think 10 or 20 bucks a month would I'd probably pay for. I, I pay $60 or $48 a month for mid-journey. <laughs> so, so, so I, uh, and I'm quite happy with it. Um, I'm, it's good. It's one of my more entertaining subscriptions that I have. Um, I'd probably give up a couple uh, streaming networks if I had to um, before I gave up mid-journey. John Credo. TechCrunch had an article yesterday where they, where they talked about a pilot program right now, ChatGPT, that you could sign up for for the professional version. But... But this is going to be integrated into all the office products, and it's going to be it's going to be integrated into Bing. It's going to be integrated into Photoshop. So it's going to be integrated into all of our other apps eventually. Jeffrey Powers, totally agree on that. Uh, I haven't been able to get into Chat GPT in the last four days. The free version of Chat GPT. I know you can get a plan through the app, but I, I haven't done that. But uh, if you want to get something right here right now because when you're going to chat gpt you need an answer right now and if you're getting if you're getting server down type messages then that's not going to help you at all alex final thought i do think that the, that it is it, it's the uh integration with all the apps that is going to be really exciting as john said is that is that you're going to be able to like for instance i i could for instance for a to do a test for makana and i want to show it to an, a client 
let's say makes valves, I could tell ChatGPT, give me 50 questions about water valves, you know, and it would just fill them all with names and people and things. And so that I could show them that. And then the next meeting, just swap it to, you know, whatever, you know, airplanes or whatever that is. And it would just ask all these questions for me. And I think that you're going to, you're going to see that, that kind of integration, um, you know, show up relatively, relatively soon, probably the next year, you're going to see a lot of apps that just incorporate it um, into the, into the process. I believe we're ready for the next question. Paul Terry Wallace, Austin, Texas, Golden Globes, DOA. Alex Lindsay to start out. Oh, the awards are all losing steam. <laughs> like, you know, so I think it's, it's, uh, I, I will say um, that the awards got pretty political. And so what they did is they cut their viewership in half um, by, by really taking on a hard line on, on things. And I think that that was a kind of an unforced error. Um, and, and so I think that now they can't figure out how to get back out of that hole. And I don't, I don't think they're going to. Harshid? Out of all these awards and whatnot, what I found as uh, audio description was amazing. Um, the stuff that was going on during the show, the way the envelopes were being opened, people having tears in their eyes, the description of that was phenomenal. So if you really want to learn about audio description, since it is dead on arrival, which is uh, what DOA stands for, um, is to go uh, look at it and turn on SAP second audio or second audio, audio programming and just look at the way the women um, did the audio description. It was just phenomenal because every little element of what people were wearing to people's emotions were captured and it was really quick within the time frame of the show. So it's a really good learning lesson if you guys are interested. Yeah, it was a pretty standout thing for the fashion industry and my my uh, the show itself. I I thought what I'm going to do next year is um, join my wife to watch the pre-show red carpet because the fashions are I think are fascinating. I love people working at the high end of that industry, and then come in the last 15 minutes because it's the only award show where people drink through the whole thing in the audience and then get up and try to ramble through those last big speeches, and that was fun to watch. Anyway, Jeffrey has Jeffrey Powers has a thought, Jeffrey. And it's not about it's not about the awards ceremonies. If the awards ceremonies disappeared, you know that's one thing. But it's all about those awards and being able to tout that uh, that this thing won this award, or, or and be able to return them for your 1980s movies, so they can mock you on their live show with those awards. All right. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is here. How are these sorts of production permits acquired? Do you use a lawyer or exped expediter, or do you do it yourself? Mitch, start us off. Um, I do it myself, uh, particularly if I'm working with a big city that does it all the time. New York is really easy. You just call the uh, the Office of Film and Television, and they'll walk you right through it. They'll send you the forms. You go through all that. Uh, Miami, uh, Chicago, um, uh, uh, obviously L.A. It's very easy to do it. And I'm sorry to say that my home state of Delaware is horrible. We end up with the uh, uh, the Chamber of Commerce. Yeah, sometimes there's a motion picture and film office in the bigger cities, and they, they understand this process really well and will expedite and help you understand who to contact. There are other smaller venues where it's more difficult, particularly if you get into things like I've shot on public lands and had to get permits from the BLM. And then if we move a mile and a half over to a new location, suddenly we're in the Forest Service or something else, so a different agency. So it can get very complicated pulling permits for location shoots, specifically if you have a big footprint. Alex, you had some thoughts? Yeah, usually you want a good producer who's done it before. You don't need a lawyer. You don't need anything else that's that's high. You know, these are just these are just pieces of paper. But 
you do need someone who's done it before. You got to pay attention to a lot of the small details. Like for instance, uh, as as Bill said, um, you changing jurisdiction. So you're fly, you're driving from Santa Clarita, Santa Clarita to a, into another county. Um, not that I've ever done that. <laughs> and suddenly you're out of the jurisdiction that you that you pulled the permit for. So you have to kind of think through that as well. Yeah, I, I got tagged in Sedona and it was like, no, you're on the reservation now. And it, really? <laughs> I said, yeah, that street back there, that's the boundary. So it's just funny like that. And uh, New York makes it easier to use the permitting system than it does just to go off on your own because they give you the parking permits. Uh, they tell you about the insurance. They'll supply uh, police if you need them. It's just very, very, very well done. Yeah. And you said the word insurance, which usually when you pull permits, proof of insurance is a must. So let's go on to the next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, asking, what small wireless mic like the RODE GO 2 would you suggest for UHF frequencies? Chris Fenwick, start us off. Uh, you know what, Chris, I'm going to apologize. Uh, I read the question wrong. Um, I will say I recently was at SEMA with Keenan, and I was shocked at how well the RODE GO 2 actually did work. Um, if you're afraid of using it because... It seems like a, a toy thing. I mean, I will admit it looks a little goofy. And we were literally just using the mic on the thing. And the nice thing about it, I'm just going to point this out. We were shooting on iPhones. By the way, I love the idea of going as small as possible. You can go uh, USB, uh, USB out of the receiver. I don't think this is the receiver. Uh, into an iPhone through the ThunderTube port. Or if you need to do... Tip ring sleeve sleeve, you can do that also. Uh, I was shocked how well it worked. Like literally shocked. And I've done big trade shows with, you know, slinging $100,000 worth of gear over my shoulder for decades. This was amazing. I'm going to go get the website for ThunderTube. That's a cool term. Uh, Alex Lindsay. Uh, the one that I'm that I'm the most familiar with are the electrosonics. You know, so the, a lot of the electrosonic, very very small body packs, um, you know, are are UHF and they're they're great. I've used them for a lot of shows. Uh, the A20 from Sound Devices is something I really want to play with because it it's it's a more I believe it's a more advanced system, especially with the new receivers and everything else. But it's a pretty pricey uh, setup to get to kind of get lined up. But it is uh, it looks amazing. So the A20 is something I'm interested in from Sound Devices. But the one I've used for the last two decades has been electrosonic. Jeffrey Powers. So what I used at CES was this one right here. This is the ZG scene that looks exactly like the Rode, Rode wireless pack. It's a dual wireless pack right here. And the best part is that this is all UHF. It runs on the 500, uh, 500 frequency, uh, megahertz frequency. And it has everything that I need to do a dual, dual uh, capture if I wanted to mic up the other person. So I'm not sure if they're, if they're still on Amazon, but I know that there's a few other UHF versions of that. You just have to watch out where you go if you've got to uh, talk with an RF, uh, RF person uh, to get your, your mics registered so you're not uh, jumping over other people's frequencies. All right, next question. Ronnie Hofsey in Tromso, Norway, asking, could the newly released DJI RS3 MLNI be used as a PTZ and controlled in some way by Companion? What about auto-tracking with the Raven Eye, like on its bigger brother, the Ronin RS2 or 3? This could be a very workable auto camera. Yeah, I think that's the RS3 Mini, but uh, Jesse Kester is going to start us off here. 
Um, about that Raven Eye tracking, I would encourage you to ignore all their promotional materials and also go ahead and ignore all YouTubers who are speaking on Raven Eye. You absolutely need to uh, rent the equipment for a weekend and test it out with the 16mm or equivalent lens. 35mm, 50mm, and 85 You don't have to go past 85 because once you see what happens at 50 it gets worse at 85 and continues on down the line. You absolutely must test it for your use case. Uh, it is not as reliable as you might be expecting. Interesting. Thanks for the man on the street. Uh, Alex, thoughts? Yeah, I think that DJI has really built a great, smooth arc from I am going to use an Osmo or I'm going to use a little, the little Osmo, the little handheld all the way up to some pretty advanced settings, you know. And so I think that the, the RS3 is really amazing, um, and as well as the RS2, but the RS3 really stepped it up a lot um, as far as what it does. The Mini looks like it's a great in-between. If you're doing, I, I could see by having a an RS3 with a lot of the bells and whistles for like the main shooter at something like, but the R, this uh, Mini is a great wedding camera. You know, it's a great like follow along, grab some stuff that's a little smoother than handheld. Um, so I think that it can do a lot of those things relatively fast. I wouldn't worry about the Raven Eye, but I've never used any of those auto trackers. You know, I just am building the shots that I want with these. It's not the kind of it's not the kind of shot I'm trying to build. Um, and so, uh, so I think that it's uh, I think it's going to be a great uh, great tool that way. Jesse had another wrap up comment, and it sounded like I was coming down really hard on DJI. We have multiple Ronins in our cage, and we use them regularly on pretty much every production we do out in the field. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, Game Creek Video seems to be one of the dominant mobile production vendors in the U.S., uh, but they're based in New Hampshire. How would they route a truck trip of that length, and how would they break up the driving so the drivers don't arrive tired? Alex, start us off. Yeah, they're they're based everywhere. They don't they don't they don't take them back to <laughs> back, back to New Hampshire. Uh, so you know, so I think that those are the um, yeah. So any uh, you know the um, uh, uh, yeah. So that. All of these are based all over the place. The trucks stay where they're at. They they handle regions. As most of these trucks are really really busy in the areas, largely around game uh, sports, you know. So those they're 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 kind of regional trucks. They're not they're not going ever home. Maybe they go home once a year to get to get worked on, but that's about it. Chris Henwick, uh, exactly right. If the trucks go home, business is bad. So they're on the road. They're stationed in you know they'll have a bunch of trucks on the west coast and the south, whatever. Um, if they go home, it's a bad thing. A friend of mine used to run a big audio console rental business, and he his business was such that his warehouse was such that he didn't even have room for all of his consoles if they all came home. He wouldn't have space to store them. They were on major tours all over the world. Like he he would lease uh, one of the more fun ones is he leased a console to YouTube, and they they had it. Uh, a Paragon ATI. They had it on the road for two years doing the zoo tour. Alex, did you want to uh, last little quick comment? Yeah, the uh, uh, the other one is NAP, and they're out of Pittsburgh. And the, if you the NAP is is their uh, their main main location, I think is in Harmerville, which is just about fifteen minutes north of Pittsburgh. And I think mostly it's there because it's on a highway. It can go to both uh, seventy six and uh, twenty eight, <laughs> so it can get to a lot of places really quickly, and has a lot of parking areas. And we have one final question before we get to our panel discussion on lenses. So let's dive into it, Mitch. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas is back. Is polywork.com the new Uber for tech gigs? More suited for the type of flexible tech jobs and collaboration of today than LinkedIn.com, which is more suited for long-term jobs. 
Jesse, do you have experience with that? Um, I don't, but I get, uh, I, I, I'm wary of anything that is the Uber of X because usually it involves getting as many people into the room as possible and having them try to underbid each other. It's, it's a very fast race to the bottom when you have these kind of uh, group sourced gig uh, websites or platforms. Yeah, it's interesting to me whenever I see a new uh, service coming up and I, 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 the first thing I try to determine, are they more interested in providing a really good service? Or are they more interested in capitalizing on a current trend and just making money? And I don't, I'm not saying anything negative about polywork.com. I know nothing about them. I just know that um, there's a lot of land rush to, to try to come up with new endeavors that are purely designed to make money and don't really have somebody with a passion for building that industry out. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to see more and more of gig type work for a lot of those things just because the technology is allowing us to do that. I don't know if it always works, but I do think that it does make sense for people to build small teams. And so I think that you're going to see this this trend uh, continue. What's really missing is being able to really certify people that they can actually do it. And that's more than just a, taking a test or taking a class. It's, you know, really, and no, no one's really solved that, at least in our industry. Yeah, that's exactly kind of the, goes along with what I was thinking. If they're just trying to bring in a bunch of subscribers or a bunch of people into the business to pay and they don't really want to develop them and help right. them become good at what they're promoting for the for the public, then mm, but we'll see. Uh, hopefully they can do it right. All right. I think we made it uh, essentially to the top of the hour here, which means it's time to switch over into our panel discussion for today. And as noted, we're going to be talking about lenses, lens accessories, everything that has to do with the optical part of uh, this. There's so many changes. Uh, you know, our industry has evolved and evolved. And when I started, um, you know, anybody who was doing work for money really needed expensive cameras and expensive lenses and lens kits and a whole bunch of stuff. And that has just changed so radically over the course of the last few years. It's a different landscape out there than it used to be. And uh, I think we're all going to have to navigate it. I got a couple of quick uh, little image things here. And so uh, really what I want to do is kind of frame uh, what's happening. One thing, th these are just some general categories. And the reason I wanted to put this up is because I wanted to everybody to understand that we want to be ecumenical and talk about all of these. So broadcast lenses, still camera lenses, there are fixed lens things that are kind of work a little differently and external things that even work with iPhones. And we're going to try to make sure that we're open for questions about all of these. Uh, generally, when I started out, lenses, you, you were dealing with lenses in two primary categories, primes, which are fixed focal length lenses and zoom lenses. And you had to know about some of these things. Uh, these are lens attributes that have always been important. What is the focal length or the variable focal length of a zoom? What is the lens speed or aperture? It's zoom range. Is it rugged became a huge deal because we found that some were reliable and some were not as reliable and lens coatings and things like that become important. So those are just some of the kind of potentials to talk about. I want to open it up. We're going to get uh, Alex is going to have uh, something to say, and then I want to get into the questions as soon as possible. Alex, what are your thoughts? Oftentimes your lens is more important than your camera. It's oftentimes more expensive than your cameras um, <laughs> that you're putting them on. Uh, your, cam your camera is a sensor and obviously color, you know, science and a lot of things are important, but the lenses often really give a flavor to what you're doing, um, and they can be either very um, 
uh, sterile, <laughs> where they're just getting exactly what's in front of them, or they can add a lot of flavor to something so they can be warmer, they can be cooler, they can have be more sensitive to light, like a K35 lens is going to give you big, nice, soft flares and milk and a kind of a milky substance to it that you're not going to get with a, a standard off-the-shelf lens. And so a lot of us look for certain, you know, you'll find DPs looking for certain types of lenses. Sharpness is one of those things that, that a lot of people look at. And lenses, unlike many other things that we deal with, you know, the electronics are important, but a lot of it is also really related to the glass. And it's why lenses tend to hold value is because it's not like getting a lot cheaper to make to, to, to ground that glass um, at the level of precision that a high-end lens needs. And so a lot of times you start, you build your cameras. The reason that Blackmagic did well with doing an EF mount, it's a lot of people with EF lenses, and they're very resistant to changing their, you know, changing, you know, asking someone to change their lenses is usually the most exp expensive thing you're asking a photographer or videographer to do, and they're generally highly resistant to it. <laughs> so, so the uh, because they they have maybe twenty thirty thousand dollars worth of, um, and and I think at, at my height in Pixel Core, I think we probably had two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars worth of lenses, you know. And so, so you really have to um, you you really think about like, am I going to change that mount? So you think about whether the mounts are there. And in video, we're really talking about B four PL uh, EF. Um, you know, those are the, the and, and B4 and PL are kind of the, the main mounts that we see in most broadcast cameras. EF being something that's more in the prosumer world um, that's there. And, and like things like Blackmagic, we were talking about the other day, one of the big things with the Ursa is you can just pull those mounts off so you can change those mounts to what you need it to do. So those are other things you want to pay it to, a lot of attention to. Um, but it's, uh, it, it is important. Remember that every lens, even the same lens from the same manufacturer will have a different flavor. Um, so uh, when um, ILM was getting all the lenses they were getting for SW2, um, I believe that they went through 20 or 30 lenses at least. Sometimes I heard a number much higher than that, but I'm not sure if it's true. Um, maybe a, a, up to 100 lenses and they got the same lens from Fujinon and they were looking at matching the color for every single lens. And then they pulled the ones that all were the closest to each other. So that gives you a sense of like they had to go through it because every time they make that lens, it's a little bit different. It's a little cooler, a little warmer. And to be able to have all those things be the same was something that you have to have a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of uh, uh, juice to be able to, to get that kind of support. But I think that that so you want to think about that because that affects how you're going to. A lot of people think, oh, I'll, I'll just buy all the same lenses for all the same cameras and all my color, my cameras will match. And that may not be always the same, you know, and so, so you always have to kind of take that into account as well. And chill. Yeah. My vote is for staying in the same ecosystem. So that may contradict a little bit what Alex just said there. For example, um, I've sort of committed to, to Sony all the way up to the Venice when I'm shooting and the E-mount lenses, uh, they're not just uh, a miracle of machining and manufacturing and coatings and things, but they also have electronic stuff going on where they're talking to the, the camera body, uh, telling the camera body things like, well, there's an aberration in the lens up over here, so compensate for it this way. The fact that the lenses are now talking to the cameras, you need to be a little concerned about matching the lens with the camera. I'd love to use Sigma lenses, and I often do because they're cheaper, but um, they don't always have the same kind of result in the communication going on between the body and the lens. Alex, a follow-up? Yeah, I mean, I think that for a, 
a lot of industrial work, I think, it, you know, using the lenses that, that come with the camera systems is something that happens a lot. When you start talking about kind of larger production, the lenses get chosen because of the needs of that production. And they, you know, they can be big, big, long lenses. They can have lots of controls. A lot of times we have external motors for them. We have, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but we have, you know, we can attach things to them. And, and so the, the, the lenses become a, you know, oftentimes a DP will come in and the lenses are changing all the time, you know, and, and so, and, but for, for the smaller kind of prosumer, high level professional or low level professional stuff, yeah, we kind of keep them all together. Um, but once we start talking about Aries and, and Sony, you know, Sony's and, and even the black magic stuff, we're, you know, swapping those lenses in and out, you know, all the time and making decisions about those. And that's why you have to also get good. We're going to, we'll talk in the future about color correction, but you have to get really good at matching those cameras. If you're going to do it live, if you're not doing it live, you can match them later. <laughs> so, so you don't have to worry about it quite as much. Mitch. Yeah, I do agree with what Alex was just saying, uh, because it de depends on what area of the business you're, you're attacking it. Uh, when my uh, DP friend uh, and business partner uh, helped me set up my FX3, you know, we arrived at, uh, with the zoom lens that we had that about 40 millimeters was the uh, sweet spot for where I am, even with the uh, fantastic Sony uh, autofocus. But then he said, you like that? And I said, yeah, I love it. And uh, then he said, hold on a second. And he pulled open this case. And when he opened it, this light shone and uh, the uh, choir sang. <laughs> and he brought out some uh, Cook uh, Primes. And he put a 40 millimeter Cook Prime on there. And it was just night and day. So, you know, so uh, yeah, agreed to all that uh, uh, connection between the lens talking to the camera body. But there's just something magical about some of the ways that uh, some lenses are made. And Cooks are nice. And we've been talking about mid-range and up to the stratosphere here, very expensive lenses. They're, you know, I kind of think of them as investment lenses. Uh, you know, when I bought my first Canon still cameras, I started investing in EF mount lenses, and I ended up with four or five of them. And they were an expensive thing. In the interim, if I needed something particular like a faster lens and I didn't have a critical shoot, I could uh, maybe go with a prime, uh, a, a simple 50 millimeter prime to get a portrait uh, shoot done that was a fraction of that cost. And of course, now that we're into people shooting with iPhones and things like that, clip-on lenses and other things, I just don't want to completely ignore the bottom end of this because you may have a camera that you need to do some special effects with or something, uh, maybe a small camera, maybe using your phone or something. And the attachment lenses, if you understand the, the way lenses work, you can find a lens that will be a temporary lens for a specific function. Also, the other thing that is incredibly important to understand is that even if you're shooting with one of the more expensive lenses, almost everybody starts out by renting lenses. And there are huge libraries of rental lenses out in the field. So if you cannot afford a 70 to 200, um, you know, Canon lens or something like that, almost every photo store in the country will probably have one in their rental library. And for 35 or 50 bucks uh, a day, you can bring that in and play with it and learn how it works. Chris, you had some thoughts. Alex wanted to chime in there. All I was going to say is that even most people end up renting lenses and not even start renting lenses. You'll, you, when you, when you're really doing a lot of production, you, you have core lenses that you need in the, in the, in your office or that you need on a day-to-day -day basis. You might have one or two of those that are there, but for every real production that, that, that we're doing, like a, a major production, we are renting the lenses. We are not buying them unless the only reason I bought a lot of lenses is because we were using them two or three times a week. And so I looked at the rental. I looked at how often I was renting. When would I pay those lenses off? And these were getting these Cabrio lenses that were that we that we bought. And so we bought the the least expensive versions of what we needed on a day to day basis. 
and then rented, still rented, ended up renting Ingenues and whatever else we were renting for a specific job. Um, but you, most of the industry, this is a really good, this is a big part of rentals um, at, a, at, a, any, at any company. Most of the industry just rents, rents lenses all the time because they're just too expensive to pay off. Um, and, no, and the people who can pay them off, the big companies don't want to put that on their books. They don't want, they just want the rental to sit inside of the production cost and they don't want to figure out amortization or storage or, or care. Chris, did you have a thought beyond that or did you just want to send me yeah, that direction? You know, Mitch kept talking about the camera and the lens talking to each other. And I just got to say, uh, that makes me very self-conscious. I would just feel they're talking about me behind my back. <laughs> they are. They are. Uh, this guy so, has no idea what he's framing. At that top end, a director of photography who's been doing it for many years, yeah, he or she will know the difference between the look of the Cook Primes and the Zeiss Primes. And for the particular job, we'll want to do that. Most of us can't afford to do that and work on that level, but it, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Optical science is a huge, complex deal, and they put huge amounts of money into designing these. Alex? I'm sorry. At some point, we have to do a short. We have to. We, there could be a whole channel of of lenses talking to cameras. You know, like would you look at you know this one, this the shot like the lens the lens talking to the camera like this shot would be way better if it was good. Good him lower. again. You know, like you know, like oh my gosh, like the last time he this he hit me, <laughs> he threw me into. I'm a F seven. I needed F two to get this yeah, shot. Like, I just oh, can't I like do that it. Camera operator, but he doesn't have a soft touch about him. <laughs> It Sorry. would be fun, okay. wouldn't All it? Right. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we've had some fun. Let's get into actual questions here. Uh, Mitch? Stefan Fischer from Wurzburg, Germany has a question. The new Panasonic Lumix S5 II seems to be a good deal. Would you try to mount your EF mount Canon lenses to that L mount of the Panasonic Vianet adapter? Alex? I think it just depends on what you're trying to do. Um, you know, what what is what are you using that camera for? I, I will try to avoid adapters uh, whenever possible. It really, you know, a lot of times it just makes them a lot harder to work with. Um, so if I, it really depends on the use, but I, I, I tend to, tr I have lots of adapters and we've used lots of adapters, but um, really think about if you need them or not, because it's there, they, they um, communication becomes a problem, mounting becomes a problem, light becomes a problem, um, you know, sharpness becomes a problem. All these things are issues when you start using the, the, the uh, converters. And I agree with Alex. You know, if you're going to be adapting, you can't ever be completely certain that 100% of the metadata that is passing from the lens into the recording system gets passed correctly. And I don't know, you know, everybody edits differently and things like that. I know for me, when I'm working in Final Cut and I open up the metadata tags because I want to see what the field crew did, having the ability to see what lens there was, um, maybe correct it in a uh, metadata correction uh, or actually in, a, in an editorial optical correction for that lens, I need to know what the lens was. And if I didn't get notes from the field, that pass along can become very important in modern workflows where you want as much data coming in from the field as possible. Mitch? Uh, Guy has a, a comment. He says, I have an EFL mount adapter from Sigma on my S1H. The Canon lens uh, autofocus were all slow to react. The native L mount glass is fantastic. Yeah. And, and so that's it. I mean, the lens is going to work optically exactly the same, but these peripheral functions may be um, limited by the fact that you're doing an adapter from L to S or from something to something. Uh, so uh, let's go to the next question. 
Ronnie Hofsey at Tromso, Norway, asking suitable lenses for the Ursa Broadcast Pocket 6K Pro at a classic conference or controlled studio use. I'm guessing EF and F2.8 is sufficient, 24 to 70 and 70 to 200 or even closer. Placed typical 10 meters or 32 feet away from the stage, wide to close, manual or autofocus. Alex, thoughts? Yeah, just remember that you know, when you use a still lens, you're not going to have back focus, which means you're not going to be able to zoom between the, you know, near to far or far to near. Uh, you'll have focus. You'll Every time you change your zoom, you will have to refocus um, on a still camera. It's just not built that way. So cinematic lenses are going to allow you to adjust that back focus. And, um, and so now you're going to be able to actually focus. So it's a different class of lenses than just a 24 to 70 or 7200 um, that you're going to need to, to use there. Um, 32 feet is is a throw. So, um, you know, you're probably the, the one that we would use. And again, this would be something we'd probably rent. Or I used to own them, but we would, the 85, the, uh, the Fujinon Cabrio 85 to 300 or 325 or 320 or something like that is, is the one that we've used in the past, um, for, for that distance. Um, so, so it is, um, and that, that's going to give you the back focus. It's also a very expensive. <laughs> so, so, so the, um, but you're looking for video, uh, you're looking for ENG or cinematic lenses that are going to allow you to do that back focus adjustment that you're not going to get with a, um, with a still lens. And so those are things to remember. Also, uh, those lenses are going to, you know, you're not, it's going to be harder to motor them. You can, um, but it's, it's a little bit harder to, to, to manage those things. So on a, if I was using them every once in a while, we, and we've definitely used the EF lenses in corporate environments. Um, I would, you know, they, they, you can work. So if you bring in camera operators that are used to broadcast, they'll, they will uh, make a lot of noise and a lot of size, like, <sighs> okay, all right. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, they're like, oh my gosh, like, I'm, I don't, I don't, I don't get paid enough for this, that kind of thing. Absolutely. And on that first slide I showed, let me go back to it for just a second. If you notice the difference between lens one and lens two, the two is the still camera lens. It's got no controls for things like zoom. On the left, the broadcast lens has that rocker in the far distance. And that's a par focal lens, which means exactly as Alex said, you set the back focus once. And then as you zoom in and out very slowly and smoothly and professionally, because that's what those servo lenses are designed to do, it maintains tack sharp focus. In fact, that's the first thing you do with any lens like that is to zoom in, set your focal length on the tightest shot, then pull back out. Everything should stay completely crisp and in focus. And then you can use that lens without thinking about it across its entire zoom range. Let's go to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida asked, uh, which lens is considered normal? What mimics human visual perception based upon a full frame sensor for zoom? Uh, Jesse Kester. I think a strong case could be made for the 24 millimeter lens, but when we are reaching for neutral, we go for the 35, which might just be a, a hair more cinematic than actual neutral. Yeah, I think in original stills, people used to talk a lot about the 50 millimeter being uh, eyesight, but it changes based on a bunch of other factors. Alex? Yeah, I think it depends on what the, I think a 50 millimeter on a full frame is was what we always thought of as, as kind of the same um, distortion that we would expect from that. Maybe not the same field of view, but the same level of distortion that we would expect um, there. But of course, a 35 over top of an APS sensor would be similar to a 50. Exactly. And that's the problem. You know, it, it, it the geometry of how lenses work, the sensor size is important, the aperture. Uh, there's a lot of things that affect uh, the lens and how it actually images onto the sensor of the camera. So it, it, there's a little complexity to this subject. Uh, Jesse, you had another thought? Oh, I, I meant field of view, not... Um... Yeah. And in fact, I think 
let me just see if it's back here. Yeah, I think I have a field of view slide to give you a little better idea of this. So um, here's uh, a, a, they're talking about a standard uh, full frame sensor. Uh, Fisheye, which is that 180 degree line, will will get you the entire field of view in front of the camera, but it will be highly distorted. And everybody knows what a fisheye lens looks like. Everything looks completely distorted. So the, the magic of really good lenses is as you get tighter and tighter, not to have any, uh, or the wider shots, not to have that kind of distortion taking place. Uh, but you can see that there in the middle of the field of view for a 200 millimeter lens is very narrow. It means it's going to get only a little of what's in front of you, just a small thing. And then as the lens gets uh, wider, 50 millimeter than 24 millimeter, your field of view uh, expands out to a limit. So uh, at least a limit without distortion. Uh, a lot of people in lens uh, discussions talk about the edge sharpness and things like that. There's a lot of factors in play here. Next question. Ronnie Hofse from Tromso, Norway, asking, in the office hour studio or any Zoom meeting uh, kit with a Sony ZV-E10, would a Sigma 30mm f1.4 be an optimal budget alternative for the APS-C sensor within the extremely strict borders of the Fenwick frame? <laughs> Alex? I, I, you know, I think that... Uh... What you want to do with any setup that you're doing is, is to get a zoom lens and figure out what your optimal framing is before you decide what focal length to buy. Otherwise, your lens is going to drive your, your system. So in my older system, before I flipped this, I was at a 35 millimeter. I'm now at 50 um, because the camera is further back. So it, 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 but because I had a zoom, a 24 to 70, all of it just fit right into it. And I was able to adjust to fitting into the Fenwick frame. Um, without having to get another lens. So and now I know that if I want to buy a 50 millimeter lens, I could buy one and it would work. Um, but get a zoom lens first, figure out exactly the frame that you want. Now you know what the focal length is, but make sure that your setup is the way it's going to be for a while. Mitch Hill? Yeah, I can't, uh, I can't stress enough what Alex just said is so important. Uh, this is a ZV-E10, and I have a 17, excuse me, yeah, 17 to 35 uh, servo lens on it made by Sony. Um, now, here's a little thing about the math that's involved here. Because it's the APS uh, sensor, um, it's actually a little bit wider. The lens goes a little bit further, but it's right on the edge not being exactly the size that I want. So, again, to Alex's point, if you have a zoom, like, say, to 70, get a better shot at being able to use this in more situations. Yeah, and amplifying what Alex said, you know, it depends on your desk setup and everything else. I'm here sitting at a at a table that I've had for many years, but it's got both the main desktop. It's also got a meter bridge up there because it's an audiovisual piece of furniture. To get my camera to the right level, I had to go with a riser on top of that. And then I had to find a small enough tripod to put my camera at the right height from there so that the eye line was correct. And that's going to deter. I only had a very narrow distance that I could work with. Uh, I didn't have a lot of options. I couldn't have pushed my camera back and I couldn't have. And literally the front foot of that, that mini tripod that it's mounted on is about a quarter of an inch from the front lip. I have no no adjustability to the distance of my camera in the setup that I want here. So I agree with Alex 100%. Set up where you're going to get your camera mounted. Figure that out first. Use a zoom lens and figure out where it's okay and where it's too close and too far. And then buy the lens that works for your geometric setup. And you'll get the best results possible. Mitch, you had another thought? Um, I 
have a friend that uh, always recommends. Uh, there's a house called Lens Rentals, and uh, they're on the internet under that name. And here's what's cool about them: you can rent any lens that's out there, pr- practically everything. Uh, the cool thing about it is you can rent it by day or by week. Um, and if you like it, you can buy it at a reduced rate. At any time, you can call them and say, what's, what's the price of this? So sometimes it's better to rent and pay that rental fee to find out if that lens works, because otherwise you could be make a cry, one, buy, cry once, buy, one, buy once, cry once, or twice, whatever that thing is. <laughs> Alex. Yeah, the um, lens rentals and also borrow lenses are a great way to rent lenses inexpensively. Don't rent them for production. Like, I'll just let you know the amount of uh, trouble uh, for um, picking them up and setting them down, you know, picking them up and delivering them and when they're open and when they're not opened and how they're, you know, like they're just not a rental. Like if you're used to a rental, uh, like a professional rental location, they're not that. So um, you just, you end up with a lot of restrictions, but as far as testing lenses and doing something that isn't time sensitive, where you're really doing a real production, um, they work great and it's a lot less expensive typically. I will say I have accounts uh, with both of them as well. And the one thing I've been able to do is <laughs> because I know them well enough now, I'll say, I'm going to go on location to this place. Can you just ship the entire camera and lens package to that place? And I use yeah. them essentially for cartage. It's it's on the odd case that's really useful. Uh, let's go on to the next Next. Bob Sturdivan from San Antonio, Texas, asking, with the advancement of cameras with higher ISO, lower pixel noise, and better software, is it worth buying the larger aperture lenses for still photography? Tom Ferguson. The higher native ISOs that the cameras today have has been a great boon to all the photographers. But the physics of light and optics has not changed. If you want the soft background with the nice bouquet, uh, you still have to open up that aperture. And so they'll still be important as uh, we go along. Alex? Yeah, exactly what, exactly what Tom said. You're, you're designing a shot and you need that aperture to get to that. The other thing to remember is, is that it also gives you a a sense of the quality of the lens. <laughs> you know, so when it when something is got a you know is able to do that wider aperture, it also you know a lot of times you're looking at the middle of the lens. So most many lenses are the sharpest that they're going to be at about five six, and so um, you're you having more range on that area. Give you may not go all the way to one point eight or two point eight, but but you're going to have a higher quality lens. It's gonna that's going to have less vignetting. It's going to have less. Um, you know, sharpness issues typically, and they're a lot more expensive as a result, but it's, but that, that tends to be something that we look at as well. Chris Fenwick. Another, another aspect to the uh, wider aperture lenses is they also tend to be, um, I don't know what it's called. I'm sure there's a term for this, but uh, on a zoom lens, if you zoom from, you know, wide to tight on a cheap lens, your aperture changes. If you're shooting stills, that's not that big of a deal. If you're shooting video, that's a really big deal. Uh, On a good Canon F2.8 or whatever, or higher, uh, on the good lenses, when you zoom, uh, the the aperture will will remain the same. And that alone might be worth spending the extra money, even if you don't use all of the... uh, the aperture, you know, the widest, you know, 2.8. I think this lens that I'm on is a F... Uh, 1.8, I think I have it set at 3.2. But um, the the zoom thing is, a, is important. 
Yeah, you'll hear people say, yeah, this is F4 across the entire range. And they mean zoom tight to wide, it remains consistent. So there's no difference in the amount of light that's reaching your sensor. Um, I was going to say something else, but I think I'll just go on to the next question. Javier Alfaro from Mexico City asking, what kit or lenses would you recommend to improve an iPhone 14 Pro Max camera? Alex. There's a newer one that I haven't seen before, which is called Sandmark, um, and it, it looks like they're kind of new to the to the market. The one that most of us have used in the past for uh, augmenting what we have is the uh, Moment lenses. Moment has a whole system that is uh, mounts and cases and lenses, and they've been they've done pretty well over the last five or six years as far as providing that. So if you're really looking for filmic lenses, you can get anamorphic. You can get a lot of other things there. Yeah, usually there are four or five lenses that are available. You usually get a, a, a close-up, usually get a wide angle, maybe an anamorphic and something like that. It's, not, it's nowhere near what you find in the still photography world where there are thousands of lenses available. But, you know, the, that in the cage approach to put a cage around your camera and be able to snap lenses in, if you're shooting field production style, um, which is I'm going to set up a shot and execute the shot with the focal length and everything that I want, those are a great choice for giving you some more flexibility. Um, if it, The one thing I have trouble with with my iPhone when I'm shooting, and I do this a lot even for corporate clients, is getting any kind of a consistent zoom or push when you're trying to pinch out with your fingers is a little bit problematic. So um, at that point, I might go with a Blackmagic camera and get a better lens for it. So it just depends on the style that you want to shoot in and how you want to train yourself to use your equipment. Uh, Tom Ferguson has another thought. And you might be tempted to buy a case to go with those moment lenses, but really what you need is this little small rig uh, frame, and this is really great. It'll take the same bayonet lenses that you buy for moment, and yet you've still got the stable way of holding that and working with the camera. And I think a lot of us have exactly that cage for that reason, and I use it all the time. Next questions. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. Roscoe asking, is Micro Four Thirds still growing as a lens standard? And what are the entry-level lens choices? Does dual ISO sensors make small lens speed less of an issue? Jesse Kester. Uh, dual ISO absolutely helps with uh, low-light lenses. Micro Four Thirds does not seem to be in the boom that it was experiencing a couple of years ago. It is sliding off. I, the, the whispers I hear are that it is sliding off as, as a standard. That said, we do love it because the lenses are in the, the, the price where we consider them play lenses. Like we could have a lot more fun with our Micro Four Thirds lenses because the cost of entry is lower. And there's a lot of interesting play lenses like the Suray anamorphic lenses for Micro Four Thirds are very affordable anamorphics and they're very fun to play with at, at a price range that's more affordable than uh, full frame glass. Yeah, you want something like a tilt shift. <laughs> Very expensive in the L glass, uh, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I think that what we're what we're seeing is full frame and super thirty five or APS are are the things that have really taken off, and and I think that micro four thirds is is not going away necessarily, but it has definitely lost the shininess um, that, it, that it had before. Um, and and a lot of that has to do with so many cameras coming out with Super 35 or above uh, sensor sizes. Um, and so I think that uh, when you get used to Super 35, going back down to four thirds is it feels like you're slumming it. <laughs> so, so anyway, so so the um, uh, so the and and then the, the, the and Super 35 has turned out for a lot of video to be a great format because at full frame, it's really hard to to stay in focus at range. Um, and, at, and so that's one of the reasons that we do that there. But, um, but yeah, that, I mean, we, 
still use a couple of them, but it's mostly those little micro cameras that we're using that, you know, the, the uh, Blackmagic micros are the only thing left that we use that have uh, micro four thirds. Jeff Keithley. Oh, I'm sorry. Next question. Jeff Keithley. Amazingly enough, from Texas, are box lenses really worth $150,000 that could buy a nice house in some areas? Alex is going to tell you, yes, absolutely. I yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, so $150,000, uh, you know, I think that, um, uh, uh, remember, they're not $150,000, they're they're $1,500 a day <laughs> you know, or $2,000 a day. You know, like that's, we don't think of them, I mean, I don't think about investing in box lenses, but um, these, these really long 100X, 90X, 70X Canon and Fujinon lenses um, are when you're using them, they're they're amazing. You know the amount of light that you have, the sharpness, the the stabilization, all those things. Stabilization was a little rough until a couple of years ago, but th that's gotten a lot better. Um, they had a tendency when you put stabilization on to float a little bit, um, and uh, that has gone largely away. But when you're really trying to get a, you know a hundred x that l still looks great. Um, you know, and, and then has all the controls and going to tie into the, the rest of your camera system and have all the other things that you're there. I think that when you're using a box lens, they're irreplaceable. And if you're, if they are replaceable, then you're not using a box lens, you're using something else. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. Mitch, you had a thought? Maybe it's a good idea to tell folks what a box lens is. Those are those big lenses you see at sporting events. Yeah. Built built into these. There's still little B4s. There's still they're little huge. B4s. We, I have a picture somewhere. I couldn't find it before this question came up where we took a micro fourth. We took the little uh, studio, the um, the little black magic studio, and we put the 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 B4 to micro four thirds adapter and stuck it on the back of the of the lens. So you just had this big lens with this tiny little sensor on the end. Um, but yeah, these these uh, lenses are um, they're very expensive. I mean, I think they start about seventy eighty thousand. Go up go up from there. Um, and you know, whether they're 4k or, you know, higher as far as resolution, um, changes the price a lot. Um, but when you're doing, um, you know, I've used them for a lot of events and, and they're, they're amazing when you're putting them in the back of a room, 75 feet away, hundred feet away, and you're able to get to a head and shoulder shot and you still have plenty of room to go, um, further. It's, it's pretty great. Or if you're, you know, of course in a football field, you're, you're talking hundreds of feet and uh, you're getting these great stabilized shots. Now that's partially not just stabilized, it's they're sitting on concrete with a huge <laughs> tripod and you know there's a lot of other things that, that that play into that. Yeah, back in the day and this is interesting. In fact, I got another slide for it. Back in the day if you wanted to have control, you used to buy a lens kit and put this on your camera so you had two uh things that clamped onto your tripod things, one for focus and one for zoom. And I was just thinking how far we've come because other than at that top level you know, we're not going with lens kits now. And for most of general production, these modern pan tilt zoom cameras have most of the same controls that we had back then. Maybe not as precise, but you can just see the evolution of the industry from huge, um, complicated rigs. I mean, I think my first lens kit uh, focus and zoom cost me maybe uh, five, $600. And that was 30 years ago in today's that would easily be each of those more than a thousand dollars and many people's cameras don't cost that much now so there's just been a constant evolution as the industry evolves alex you had some thoughts yeah i would say that they they replace the ptz's replace some of the stuff but it's not it, you know when you really need something to when there's a lot of moving people are moving around a lot and a lot of things are moving there 
uh, it's very hard to replace an operator, you know, and, and you oh, can, totally. um, you know, the PTCs will replace it to some degree, but when you're really doing high level sports or high level events where you're, where you're tracking people, of course you can track them with PTCs, but not nearly at the level that you can with a human that knows what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about that great shot I saw once upon a time where uh, the quarterback fell back through the pass and the camera operator actually tracked the ball, zoomed in on the ball, and then zoomed out just as it was being caught. That is an artist at work with his tools or her tools, probably him back in those days. But still, um, you can't do that as easily these days. Now, maybe some operators, these video game kids, as Alex mentioned, who are really For skilled corporate. at like so the PTZ works really well with corporate or with slow moving, <laughs> slow moving sports, uh, you know, um, the uh, that are pretty controlled. But but I, I wouldn't as soon as we a lot of times what we do is we mix and match. We have PTZs handling a bunch of the stuff where people aren't going to move as much. And then we have a human operator or two human operators that are grabbing onto the things that we need to have uh, more control. Yeah, I can't say say sense. that I've seen any PTZs at NFL films. Not yet. But you have in the broadcasts. Yes. Not the guys running down the infield or whatever. You know, what if they'll ever put a sensor inside the ball and then put an auto tracking system in something? That'd be interesting. They're, they're working. They have it in, um, they're testing it in the NCAA. They're testing the basketball. Uh, ah. So they, they figured out how to get the basketball to not appear any different. Um, they're working on footballs um, to put those sensors in. Um, they, they, they're not, uh, the, the hard part is, is you have to get to a point where you're, you're having lots and lots of people use them and, um, and say, I can't tell the difference between the two and they can't yeah. weigh the difference. They can't have any trajectory difference. And, and so, and they can't break during the, so the big problem also is, is that there's sensors in there. You hit the basketball too hard and now it's rattling. <laughs> so, so those are, so they're, so they're, uh, so they're, you know, mounting is a thing. They have to, yeah. well, they have to mount it. There's a dual mount to the basketballs, I believe that have, that are going both directions so that so that um it stays you know the weight center gravity yeah it would be incredibly important directions. for shots yeah. yeah so but it's really cool i mean we've seen some stuff where they're they're doing it they're not doing it so much for they're trying to do it kind of like the hockey puck tracking they're they're not really they're doing it for a variety of information they're not really using it on the cameras yet interesting chris fenwick had a thought uh, I will say this a couple things one ptzs are already in major sporting events already all over uh they're doing stuff like, you know, behind the backboard or overheads and, you know, where you can't put a human being. Also, to think that you could do some sort of uh, sports camera operators are probably some of the best in the world. Their ability to read the game, not just follow what happens, but, but you know, the Gretzky thing about going to where the puck is going to be. These guys are geniuses. They're really good. And you're not going to just put some kid with a PTC controller on it and expect the same thing. Sports camera guys are amazing. And you need to remove all the latency possible between the person's idea and the lens turning. And that's why people use humans. That's why they use mechanical zoom and, and focus controllers, you know, like, like literally like crank zooms. I, I'm pretty sure those are still the, the preferred uh, yeah. choice among the sports guys and, and even in, in games i think that that when we really see games become esports become real you know like feel like real sports is when we give the camera operators you know actual like take sports operators give them sports controls and just put a monitor where the box lens was 
And when you do that, the, the, the games will feel completely different. You know, they'll, they'll suddenly feel like you're watching something epic as opposed to someone moving around with a little mouse. Back when I used to do sports, I remember talking with the guys, the camera operators, and I'd say to them, I go, why do you guys use these crank zooms? He goes, it's faster than a servo. What, stand behind a guy, like covering, you know, high first base at a baseball thing, and watch how quickly he can go from, you know, the pitcher to, you know, somebody out in the yeah. outfield, you know, like, like, like uh, in the outfield stands. I mean, you know, like at full zoom, it's, I have the most, highest respect for the guys that do that work. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Mitch, your last final comment? Yeah, it, here's the problem. A lot of those superstar camera operators are retiring. They're not around anymore. Yeah, it's going to change the industry a little bit. Hopefully there's another generation coming up. Next question. From Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio, Texas. Any recommendations on who to send lenses to to be repaired? I have a lens that's autofocus isn't working. Jesse Kester. We send our lenses off to Sammy's camera. Now they act as a middleman. They don't do the repairs in-house, so they send it off to somebody else. We don't know who, um, but we don't mind a middleman in that situation because they vet the repair people uh, in ways that we wouldn't be able to do just, just because we're not working in volumes high enough that we could test seven broken lenses at seven different repair shops. Alex? A factory-authorized uh, repair shop. Like don't don't have anybody else touch your lenses, and for the lenses that I've sent back, that we're sending them straight back to the manufacturer, and we wait for weeks for them to come back. And you typically, the most typical uh, adjustment to the lens, other than damage, is is typically recollimating it. You know, you know, for a zoom lens um, to get that to get that um, to get your sharpness back. Mitch Hill, a friend of mine was telling me he had to send a lens back to uh, Japan. And it was taking ages, and they said that the one, the one lady that knows how to redo the uh, uh, the coatings on the lens was out, and um, until she came back, it wasn't going to get fixed. Yeah, big optical science, and they typically don't disassemble unless they're in a clean room, which is like something they'd use to build semiconductors. It it has to be very precise. Let's move on to the next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana, asking, besides the moment lenses, I haven't had good luck testing clip-on lenses, especially telephoto, which is the one thing on the iPhones. Has anyone on the panel had better luck or tested a recommendation for telephoto on the iPhone 14 Pro Max? Alex. No, I mean, I think that the telephoto is the hardest one to make work well with um, with the cameras. The way the cameras are set up, you know, going out longer, I think we have to wait to see if Apple puts in a 5X lens, you know, rather than the 3X, you know. So, but I think that I, the, that's the hardest one to get right inside of a, some kind of a multiplier. Yeah, I, the more complexity you add to the lens, the harder it is to get a good, clean uh, light path through it. And yeah, I agree. I don't think there's anything I've seen out there where everybody says, "Ooh, they finally cracked the code on uh, a longer zoom for a fine uh, iPhone and clip on it. It's just not there yet. They're all pretty cheap and they're fun, but that's about it. Next question. Richard Bowman from Defiance, Ohio, continues the idea. Are there really any good clip on lenses for cell phones? Alex? No. <laughs> so, so I mean, like, like I mean, the moment ones, or and some, and this this new one that I was looking at, that Sandmark, um, that I'm kind of interested in playing with. Uh, those are the only two that I've seen with with a real mount that's going to go to a device that's going to be more calibrated. You may find a better um, thing. And, and I've had some cases where I've had some macro lenses built into them, but something that's going to clip on, uh, it's going to slide off. It's going to be very hard to get something that's worth taking on a regular basis. 
Yeah, I have a little adapter for my iPhone that I occasionally use because uh, we have a lot of fowl around here, birds that are flying by, and some of them are really interesting. So I thought, let me see if I can adapt it to a set of binoculars. There are tools to do that, but it's very fiddly and it's very hard to get something. You can get a decent picture, but it does have more chromatic aberration and things to get in the way of that. I, I'm not fully satisfied with any of those. So I, I suspect the lens, the clip-on lens is the same thing. Maybe someday there will be a big enough market here where companies like Nikon and Canon, the glass manufacturers, Leica or whomever, will um, start looking at this because there's just so many possibilities, but I don't think they can make them cheap enough now to make it worth their while, even in large volume. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Why are Cook Prime so costly? Let's start with Alex. Uh, it is uh, the the quality of the, the workmanship required to uh, do the, the glass, you know, so calibrating the glass, uh, grounding the glass, um, you know, making all of that work is, I mean, we're talking fraction, fractions of a thousandth of an inch, <laughs> like, you know, like just very, very, very fine. Uh, and, and it's just an amazing to have sharpness from the center to the corner and not have any softness to have, um, to, to have it truly be sharp, to have it work smoothly, um, just takes an enormous amount of craftsmanship. And, and it's just, uh, it's, it's very rare. And that's what you pay for when you start buying cook lenses or, or super speeds or a variety of other ones. Mitchell. I was talking to somebody at cook at that NAB or a show somewhere. And they were saying, well, we have some people back at the, the factory that can look at a rack full of pieces of glass and spot the right one to put in with that particular, uh, lens piece. It's just the craftsmanship is just right down to uh, a bespoke uh, talent that uh, grinding and coating and all that stuff. They just ha they just do it the best. Jesse Kester. And then when those complexities of engineering aren't quite enough, they develop a set of lenses that are equally weighted so you can swap the lens without recalibrating your Steadicam. And that's just like another level of complexity. Yeah, the lens lens science not other than complex. It's very complex. Next question. Next one in from Sky Gleason, Seattle, Washington. Digital Zoom. Good, bad, please discuss. Start with Alex. Yeah, you're better off shooting what you have um, and then um, up, upscaling it in software later if you're going to use it for post. Um, but don't, don't have the real time do it. Uh, I, I consider the end of my physical lens the end of my lens <laughs> like the digital version is always going to be uh tend to be soft tend to be um and you think that it, it looks fine on your little screen when you're shooting it but as soon as you blow it up there's a lot of artifacts and so i, I would recommend highly recommend against using digital zoom pretty much ever unless some kind of news gathering or or live gathering where you're just going to grab it and it's it's basically disposable footage tom ferguson digital zoom will always degrade the video quality but digital zoom, cropping, stabilization in post-production, say taking 4K footage down to HD, I think that's just magic. Mitchell? Yeah, I agree with Tom. I think punching in on a 4K image on a 1080 production, that's okay. But zooms of all kind are evil. They're just horrible. <laughs> Andy Cooken. Oh, I'm sorry. Next question. Next question from Andy Kokendorfer. Wow, how'd you know that? Uh, he's from Vieira, Florida, asking, which director's viewfinder app for iPhone do you use? Alex Lindsay. I have both Artemis Pro and Cadrage. I have a tendency to use Artemis Pro um, just because I've used it longer. Um, but I know a lot of folks that use Cadrage. They find it a little bit. I think my brother uses Cadrage uh, for his. And um, uh, and he uh, 
he likes it. He says it's a little bit faster. I was trying to look up which ones I use and I can't get into, um, into my phone fast enough. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's the answer. We're moving on to the next question. Sky Gleason from Seattle, Washington, asking a DP once told me, quote, you marry the lens, you date the camera, unquote. If you did marry into the lens family, which one and why? Alex will start. You know, it just depends on what you, where you are in the pecking order, like, like getting married or dating, like what can you get and what can you, you know, if, if you were going to marry into something, into a lens uh, solution, obviously you'd love to get it to be as high quality a lens as possible. Um, I'm most of my lenses uh, by volume are EF lenses. Um, I've been pretty happy with the, the, um, uh, with the, uh, the Cabrio, the, a lot of different Fujinon lenses I've had for video. And then finally, the ones that I aspire to ha having a large collection of are typically Ingenue. Mitch Hill? I'd love an Ingenue, but uh, not going to happen. I'm married to Sony. Yeah, you know, Cook, Zeiss, there, there, there's a variety of high quality lens manufacturers been out there for a long time. And often, uh, if you want to really learn some lens stuff, you can get a set. I know a lot of the rentals houses will give you a Pelican case that has six Zeiss lenses in it. Now that is worth maybe $70,000. So even the rental is going to be pretty steep on it. But if you can get a project where you can do that, it's wonderful to go out in the field and f switch out some primes and see what the actual footage looks like. Uh, as other people have said here, working with really high quality glass is kind of a, it's a brain waker. You're going, man, things just really do look sharp and bright and beautiful. And that's the optics involved. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, what lens would you use on a Sony Alpha series or Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera as a monitor top camera? Alex. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times what you're looking for is it's the focal length that you're looking for. If you're doing a Sony, you're probably going to use a Sony lens. Um, you know, you're probably not going to convert it. Um, the Black Magic, you're probably going to use an EF lens. So, um, so those are the ones you're looking at. And again, I, I lean towards the 24 to 70 to give me some flexibility. I have been looking at investing in a. Now that I know I want a 50, possibly a, a, a more shallowed up the field if I if I wanted to have it there. So I may may do that because I'm not changing it very much. Um, and yeah, I, I went with the 1635 and, and it's just because of the geometry. I, I talked through what I drew for my desk setup. And when I looked at it, I thought, yeah, I can be at about 28 or so and get a pretty darn good frame for my desk camera. But, um, yeah, monitor top is a different thing and you have to pay a little attention to the different geometry involved in it. Go ahead and next question. Sky Gleason from Seattle, Washington asking, where is the Nikon lens best use case? Uh, Tom Ferguson. Well, I'm married to the Canon system, and I thought religion was not allowed here on office hours. <laughs> well, we can start with the first uh, commandment. It was, is it Nikon or Nikon? I've heard it so many times both ways, and I think there's a, still a, a crazy debate. I will admit my brother-in-law uh, uh, was a solid... Well, he said Nikon for all those years that he was, uh, and um, he passed away sadly some years back. And we got his entire Nikon lens collection and had to go through a broker. It was it took us, I think, uh, a full eight hour day to have them look at every single one of his lenses and go through the process of uh, testing and ensuring. And he kept them all in really good shape. It it, it was a 
it was an investment for him and the investment paid off for the family at the end of that process. So I think that's one of the reasons that people uh, pick one and make the investment, keep them in good shape, get them tuned up. One of the advantages of NAB used to be that Canon would actually put an optical lab in their big booth upstairs at NAB. And you could bring your Canon lenses and have their technicians uh, tune them up on the show floor. So all of us used to come the first day and bring all our lenses. And then <laughs> we get a little ping on our phones on Wednesday uh, before we left and said, come pick up your lenses. They're all in good shape. Uh, it is a truly an investment. And if you make the investment, these, you know, I'm using lenses that I've had for 15, 20, 30 years. They're every bit as good as the day I bought them. And they hold residual value very well. I've gone out to the marketplace. In fact, when I was looking to buy the one for behind this teleprompter and I wanted uh, that 1635, it was close to $1,000. And I waited and waited and waited until I found one and then um, was local enough that I could drive for an hour and go check it out and put it in front of a chart and make sure that it was in good shape. But when I got it, I thought, wow, good. I saved about $400 off of the cost of a new one. And finally was able to add that to my lens library. That's kind of the way lenses work. You're, you're collecting them for the whole first part of your career. And if you're lucky, they'll last until the last day of your career. Let's move on to the next question. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas is back. Which lens ecosystem is the strongest, least likely to break, and most bulletproof? Ooh, that's a toughie. Mitchell. Mitchell. None of them, Mitchie, uh, none of them are. Uh, they're all likely to break in some spectacular way if you drop them. The question is, what are the consequences? So the more expensive ones are going to have greater consequence. The less expensive ones, less consequence. Tom Ferguson. Well, I've got everything from 8 millimeter to 800. I've been part of the Canon system for a long time. It also helps to be part of the Canon Professionals uh, CPS service. So if you have a specific uh, lens choice, find out how the manufacturer will support you. Um, also, yeah, it's interesting, um, least likely to break. I remember seeing a big story on the Olympics, and I mentioned Canon before doing that at NAB. They actually have a huge operation that they take to the Olympics because there's so many photographers, and they literally bring a forest of lenses. And for all the major credentialed photographers, you can go in and literally borrow any lens you need. If you're going to go shoot uh, snowboarding and you need a particular lens to do that, you can get it from them. And they, I, I read a story once from some of the technicians that work there, and those lenses are constantly constantly coming back, having to be repaired or, or tuned up or something because the conditions are so weird. You know, you're on the side of a ski slope waiting for the, uh, the downhill skiers to come by and something, you know, uh, your, your camera leg falls into the snow and the whole rig falls over and it jams the lens a little bit out of alignment and the lens technicians there will tear it down and rebuild it. That is possible for the big brands and things like that. It's not so easy to get that kind of level of high-end service at the top of the market as it is for those major brands. That's one of the reasons I think they're worth investing in. Next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, asking, what charts do you use to test or set up a lens? Mitch Hill. Uh, the whole lens setup and and, and uh, provisioning process is amazing. Uh, my good friend Tom Schustek over at Red Star, uh, to, to watch him work on a lens, shimming it, uh, using the, the culminator, I think we mentioned earlier, the Atavicron or whatever that device is. Oh, the uh, all of 
the, okay, great, thanks. I, it's just amazing to watch a person that knows what they're doing, uh, charting and lensing and shimming and doing all that little fiddly stuff. Alex. Yeah, one of the big things you need is a focus chart. So you have a color chart that you're going to match the cameras with. But a focus chart is usually, it looks like a circle with a bunch of little, you know, pie chart that's that's done. And a lot of times for our back focus, uh, what we're doing is typically we're setting that lens to 10 feet. Um, then you're measuring, uh, you're measuring from, there's a sensor point uh, on your camera. You measure from there to 10 feet. Um, so you measure that out and then you set the lens, you, foc you put the lens at 10 feet, the chart at 10 feet, and then you move the back focus until it's, until it's sharp. And then you start checking near and far to, to make sure that those are in there. But that's, that's the big thing for lenses for us to calibrate that back focus. Um, and that needs to be done with each camera, with each lens um, before it goes out. All right. Our last question for today. Paul Terry Wallace, Austin, Texas. Breaking news. Wise just came out with the Waterproof CamPan Pro 3, which is an Insta360 lookalike, but has a fraction of the price. Which is the lens difference? Or what is the lens difference? Well, there may well be a lens difference. I mean, in a lot of the smaller cameras and things like that, um, the lenses are fixed. Once you buy the unit, you can't do anything about it. Um, and I, at one point, I remember a lot of people talking about the difference between glass and plastic lenses. And could these plastic lenses be optically as good as glass? And that's a debate that I'm not qualified to weigh into. Uh, you know, all the big camera lenses that I've ever had were made out of glass, none of them plastic. But I was surprised that one of the most accurate uh optical systems we have our eyes when they move from glass contact lenses to all sorts of plastic and soft lenses and things like that. The lens themselves worked fine and were pretty durable in those use cases. So I got a little softer on my opinion about whether or not um, the only good thing to send light through to record it was glass. I think plastic has come a long way. I don't know the, I don't know any more than that, but that's just my opinion. So I, I would hope uh, as we have people to get these cameras and test them out, you would come back here to office hours and give us your opinion on whether or not it's a useful uh, thing in the real world. All right, that's our last question for today, which is means it's time for me to say thank you to everybody involved in producing the show. Also, a look ahead at where we're going next. Uh, don't forget, tomorrow, Understanding Digital First Events. That's our topic. Uh, Saturday, chatting about AI. So those are the main things. And of course, Saturday is always our education day. So if you have any interest in the education field, you should come tomorrow and participate in that. Uh, now, the most important part of the show, which is our thank yous. Thank you to everybody who is on the panel today. Without the panel, this show does not happen. So everybody who comes in and volunteers their time to act as uh, industry experts here, and we, they're just amazing day in and day out answering questions. Uh, the next constituency, of course, is our the people who watch this show, our producers, uh, each and every one of you who's watching and particularly adding questions. Uh, we could not do this show without your questions. This show is entirely driven by questions and, and you make it possible for us to do this. The last constituent constituency is the people behind the scenes. There is a tremendous number of them. They work, they get up every morning, work really hard and uh, in the back, they're quiet. So as the credits roll here in a couple of minutes, uh, do if you can stay around and don't have anything immediately they have to get off and do, uh, pay attention to those names as they roll by. And don't forget, as soon as the show ends, you can more than welcome to head over to After Hours where we go 24 hours a day. So thanks for watching today. We'll see you in the next time.
talking cameras. Creepy. I think the talking cameras would be really funny. You could just get behind the screens, behind the scenes shots, and then just add voices like bad, bad lip reading. Great. Have you seen all the bad lip reading from the, from the, oh, uh, bad lip readers. Genius. The last yeah. couple of weeks. Oh my God. Yeah. So funny. So good. So I need the receiver plate. I'm going to put this on the show tomorrow. I need the receiver plate for a visa. So yeah, I know. But I can epoxy to the back of a monitor that's not actually a visa monitor. I need that part of it. Ooh, I'm always leery even of epoxy because maybe it's because I came out of Arizona and the heat would eventually. It's a really light monitor. You know, like oh, okay. 